good morning, afternoon, or evening, and welcome to the Bloody Disgusting Network. The following show is just horrifying. Beware. You're not cheating on your wife if you eat my lemon square. Your lemon squares taste like ass. And welcome back to Horror Queers. We're talking, I wasn't dating him, I was fucking him. We're talking erotic thrillers and neo-noirs. And we're talking about how terrified men are of sexually confident women. And I'm Joe. And I'm Trace, and Joe, I I have a plethora of lies. <laughs> I was going to say, which one about cocaine do you want to say off the top? I was going to say that's her pussy talking. <laughs> I mean, that's a good one, too. Yeah. There's so many, like, quotable, well, maybe, quotable lines in the sense that I say them in my head, but I probably mm-hmm. wouldn't say them in any, oh, like, God, normal no. social situation. No, this is a Joe Esterhaus script. You can't say any of these things out loud to any <laughs> civilized guest. Ever. I think you... I think you could in the 90s, though, right? That was okay. Oh, we'll get into it. We'll get into it. Oh, my God. Well, everyone, we are discussing Paul Verhoeven's basic instinct. Really, Joe's bread and butter because he's got that fetish for erotic thrillers. Oh, my God. Yes, give them all to me. Especially ones like this where there's so many different readings, interpretations, like... I, yeah, I'm so excited to have this conversation. There's so much sex and there's so much house porn. This is like a movie cater... It's all for me. Yes. Taylor made. Oh my God, Taylor made. <laughs> this is a movie Taylor made for you. <laughs> Correct. Yes. I will accept all of those things. But you know what? You're right, though. There is so much to discuss, and I don't think that you and I can hash this out all by ourselves. Try as we might, but, you know, we're not going to. So why don't we bring in our two guests waiting in the wings? Uh, everyone, they are the co-hosts of the Queer Quadrant podcast, which aims to tell you why some of your favorite four-quadrant blockbusters are maybe not as straight as you think they are. You may have also heard our guest appearance on their show from last year on the 90s classic Cruel Intentions, another um, erotic heavy movie, by the way. Yes. Please welcome Brooke Solomon and Jordan Gustafson. <laughs> hello hello i was really hoping you were gonna go with like a magna cum laude something you know (laughs) like you were saying quotable lines and i'm like that's the one my head always goes you can just like likewise it's impossible not to use that line there's just so much talk about pussies in this movie Mm -hmm. said Mm -hmm. by men and it is always men ridiculous Esther House is just really in a league of his own as far as dialogue goes. I mean, the fact that he wrote this script essentially in a weekend on no illicit substances at all. No, <laughs> 17 mountains of cocaine. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm telling y'all, like, if, if there was a movie that made me want to do copious amounts of cocaine, it is <laughs> it this, this movie right here. But I do take issue with Captain Tramiel being like, uh, have you ever fucked on cocaine, Nick? I was like, no, he probably has, but you can't fuck on cocaine has. because you cannot maintain an erection on cocaine. <laughs> My God. <laughs> we know he had a coke addiction. Mm-hmm. So he just got used to it. His wiener got used to it. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. <laughs> He's off now because she was the fuck of the century, you know? Oh my God. Yeah. Another that great line. line. Mm-hmm. I think that line is said two, maybe three times in this film. 
Well, it's like when you write something good, you know, it's like you have a good bit on Twitter. Like, you've got to keep going back to it. You're not going to not mm-hmm. do your bit. So, like, <laughs> yeah. he's going to keep recycling. Jordan it. is the king of running bits into the ground. So, oh, for sure. he would know. It will probably happen here. <laughs> I fully, fully watched this movie and was like, how long until Jordan is like, let's do the Muppets challenge with this. Which human <laughs> wow. would we keep and which would we do Muppets with? Well, obviously you keep Catherine Trammell and yes. Kermit is Michael Douglas and she's uh-huh. like, am I gonna fuck Kermit? This I is, don't know. This is like some happy time murders energy. I don't like it. I don't <laughs> oh like God. it at all. <laughs> <laughs> well, there were some... Who she remembers was, that movie? She was pretty happy with the time she was murdering. Mm-hmm. Oh! Come on. Come on. It, it, it's so funny to me because I can't imagine anyone watching this movie and not thinking that Michael Douglas's character is a stupid piece of shit. Like, both, he's, oh, he's yeah. an idiot he's uh-huh. and he's a piece of shit. He's the world's worst detective. Yeah. It's amazing. He's so stupid. I love it. I fucking love it. And the fact that people are like, hmm, I don't know. How are we meant to feel about this Catherine woman? You're like, how are we supposed to feel about Nick? He's yes. the idiot. Yes. That's, it's so funny, too. And we'll talk about, you know, claims of misogyny and homophobia and biphobia and things because that mm. are all sometimes oh. valid complaints that are lobbied against this film. Mm-hmm. But I would also argue this film, if you're going to cry misogyny, I think you can also cry misandry because the men are all fucking <laughs> stupid. Yes. 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 I think that's why this movie, like, Brooke and I, this is a, a favorite of both of ours because both of us are lunatics for Paul Verhoeven. Mm-hmm. Big Verhoeven. Mm-hmm. As you should be. Of course, as as one must. But it's like, I think that's how all of his movies sort of, like, skirt through a lot of these trappings or, like, you know, lobbied complaints, especially this movie where people are like, oh, it's so misogynistic, it's biphobic and all these things. And I'm like, well, on mm. one hand, you can see that. But on yes. the other hand everyone's a terrible person and honestly maybe the men more like discounting murder you Mm -hmm. know so it's like well yeah i don't know i i don't know i don't think this is like such a hot take because this movie really does have like a lot of different (laughs) interpretations but i actually think this is one of like Mm -hmm. my favorite feminist movies and maybe one of the most like interestingly feminist movies i've ever seen okay i am really excited to talk about that yeah so there are two commentaries that come with this film on the blu-ray and one is by director paul verhoeven and cinematographer jan de bont and of course jan de bont we know would go on to direct such classics as twister and speed of course and speed two and speed two and the haunting (laughs) cruise control (laughs) classics and hits and misses yeah but the other commentary is with feminist critic and noted author camille palia and she has a lot of interesting takes on the film, but uh, when she t- discusses just feminism in general and the lobbies of misogyny against the film, it does seem, honestly, it's not unlike what we feel in the queer community, where I feel like it's like a fractured thing, where a lot of, mm-hmm. there's different types of feminists that have different ideals about how oh, women sure. should and should not be presented, and what is a strong woman versus what is an evil woman, and how the femme fatale plays into that, because right. mm-hmm. some feminists think the femme fatale is an inherently misogynistic archetype, no matter what. So... That I, I, I'm so excited to get into these because there's so many, as you said, different reads on how you can take this film. 100%. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's one of the reasons why we're really excited to have the pair of you on here as well because you're <gasps> both noted to be sexuals. And what? you know, this Thank movie you. is well, it's interesting. I I'll confess, I never really looked at it this way. I knew that there was like a history of picketing it in the same way that cruising had been in the 1980s. Mm-hmm. But I didn't realize that a bunch of people were like, oh, this movie, this is maybe putting too strong a term on it. But some people feel like this is the bisexual equivalent of what the Silence of the Lambs did for the trans community. And I was like, whoa, that 
is strong and mm-hmm. i had never really considered it that way before yeah and it's like not to just be blunt but imagine being so wrong in <laughs> your belief <laughs> sorry uh oh oh no, no. It, it, but, but that's the thing right like we have a bisexual woman as a crazy sociopath or psychopath or whatever you want very to call valid it. In all of her but, actions. But, uh, you know what? I'm sorry. I'm going to save this because we, we are going to get into this shit. <laughs> well, wh- why don't we go into this, though? Because, yeah, let's go to how this got made. and then We have we'll to go- get off before we get off. Yeah. Oh, my God. There's so much getting off in this movie. There is the sex in this. Well, I'm sorry. The one sex scene between Douglas and Stone <laughs> that is like in the middle of the film is possibly hotter than most porn that I've watched. Nobody does it like Verhoeven. <laughs> right. You can always count on him. Is it realistic? No. no. Is it, is it crazy? Hot? Yes. yes. <laughs> and that's, you know, with Verhoeven, like, I haven't seen his entire filmography, but I always get so excited every time a film of his crosses my, my screen because I just love his candid approach to sexuality. It's one of the most refreshing things about all of his films, as controversial as many of them are. Yes. Yeah. Right. Well, sex is controversial, especially in North America. Yeah, yeah. he leans into yeah. how controversial it is to Americans. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which yes oh gosh i can't wait well it's like the sh- I th- I, when you said like the sex scene it's like this always goes around twitter but i feel like the showgirls pool sex scene mm. constantly just gets floated and everyone's like wait floated. have you guys seen this and it's like yeah. yes yes and it's a work of art it's masterful yes yes there will definitely be some tangential showgirls talk and if i have my oh, way some tangential sure. benedetta talk because Ooh. paul verhoeven and his interest in the sapphic <laughs> women of his films is, is really interesting to me well I've only seen Benedetta once, and I liked it. I didn't love it, but I, I it's definitely a film that I feel like merits a repeat viewing to fully absorb. Mm. Well, so th- the screenplay for this film, it was written, as we all said, by Joe Esterhaus in the 80s, and it prompted a bidding war until it was purchased by Coralco Pictures for $3 million. And Esterhaus had been the creative source for several other blockbusters, like Flashdance and Jagged Edge. Um, uh, He wrote the film in 13 days, so it was a bit longer than a weekend, but maybe not as long as you would expect a film of this length to be. A full two hours, yeah. (laughs) Mm -hmm. When Verhoeven finally got in his hands, he actually suggested changes to the script that Esterhaus disagreed with, one of which included a lesbian sex scene that Esterhaus called exploitative. Um, (laughs) I... I'm curious about this, as if none of the other sex scenes in this movie feel exploitative. Exactly. Well, Mm -hmm. I think that, like, that in and of itself is a really great kind of snapshot of how people felt about, like, queer depictions Mm -hmm. on screen during this time period, where, like, this is an extremely, extremely sexy movie with, like, a lot of salacious stuff in it, but the second that there's a lesbian sex scene, like, that Mm -hmm. is a bridge too far. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I feel like if we had that... Then, because it's a it's a film written by a man, directed by a man, even if it didn't come across as exploitative, people might call it that anyway. 100%. Maybe not in 1992, but certainly today. Not. Yeah. yeah, but I mean, it's like you look at Benedetta, like that right. came out last year, and that has so much lesbian sex, <laughs> written and directed by the same man. Yeah. Um, and it's it's just I feel like Verhoeven is kind of like in a weird league of his own, same as Esther House, where he just kind of i don't know in my opinion gets a little bit of a free pass because what he's exploring is so unique and Mm. so interesting and he just seems very genuine in what he wants to put on screen that that's okay i'm sorry that that is what i was gonna say earlier the way i lost my train of thought was even with benedetta which which again is a lesbian nun movie 
it never feels grotesque. It never feels like lecherous. Like it, yeah. it always, as you said, genuine is probably the best word I could put on it. I think it's like also because he's an outsider coming in and critique, like all of his movies are despite like some foreign ones, et cetera, so much, especially his American movies are such a critique on like Ooh, American yeah. culture. And like, as we were saying earlier, like America's relationship with sexuality and like sex as like a thing and like as an object and as a thing that people do. And I feel like, I don't know. I think that he is able to critique how we view it and put that into his movie in like such mm-hmm. a smart way. And I think honestly, the addition of a lesbian sex scene honestly might have helped this movie because if you are going to knock some of the sexuality, I feel like it comes in her relationship with Roxy versus mm-hmm. like her bisexuality with like Michael Douglas or like other people like within the world because Roxy sort of gets shunted to the side. So right. and then it's just like watching her sex versus engaging in sex herself so i feel like if you had roxy as like an active participant in mm-hmm. the sex itself it might have even made the film more queer and also right. like kind of fleshed out that character a little more then again we don't know how the scene would have been shot etc but like you can see a way in which that works more yeah. you know yeah i feel like we can even identify probably where that scene would have taken place or maybe would have been suggested and i do think it would have fit within the world of the film but mm, sadly we we never get that Uh, i mean look there's at least more queerness in this film than there is in the sequel basic instinct to risk addiction have you seen oh i own it (laughs) oh my god see i have never seen it and i never will Oh, I don't it's so think boring. I can That's the problem it. with it. It's not interesting at all. Trace and I covered it for our editorial series back on Bloody when we were still doing those. And it basically just defangs Catherine. So it completely misunderstands the allure of the character. It omits her bisexuality completely. Ugh, she only shocking. fucks men. And it's also so dull. Like, <laughs> so, so boring. But it's so funny, though, because that was 2006, and I think it's it, it makes sense to me that a main, what well, was a mainstream film release in 2006 mm-hmm. was releasing any semblance of queerness from a character. <laughs> right. Oh, yeah, right. I, I, a lot of these, even though I think that this is a very bisexual movie the term Mm -hmm. bisexual is never uttered and like i think that uh, a lot of people's issues with kind of like the depiction of it rightfully so is that it seems at least sort of like in esther house's mind as more of a byproduct of uh, a byproduct Mm -hmm. of of catherine being this kind of like sexually adventurous like confident woman and not her like authentic desires and um Uh a lot of times when we see movies that were sort of you know accidentally or intentionally very queer when there are spin-offs or sequels a lot of that does get defanged because Mm -hmm. everyone sort of realizes what they did and they didn't really mean to do it and then they have to backtrack because they don't want to commit to it Right. I will say, um, just to defend myself, because I I was the one that kind of made... Well, I guess we decided to watch Basic Instinct 2 on our own, Joe, because we were doing that article. But mm-hmm. it, So Joe and I have only met in person once, and this was the time when we met. And so oh my we, God. as a palate cleanser, we watched The Wachowskis Bound after oh, Basic Instinct yeah. 2. My favorite movie of <laughs> all yeah, time. Okay. You want to talk good. about a, a well-shot lesbian sex scene. Oh my scene. God. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> But let me tell you how badly Basic Instinct 2 comes off as a result. We are just like, well, here's fucking queer perfection on yes. the screen, courtesy of the Wachowskis. And then you've got this wet, limp noodle of a film. And it's just like, well, 
I guess I've done too much coke because that movie's not getting me up. <laughs> yeah. I would still recommend you watch Basic Instinct 2 colon Risk Addiction because I just, <laughs> it's just one of those things where it's like, it's not good, but... Just full stop. It's not good. I, I just feel like I feel like you should just watch. It you just like, well, look at what could, look at what this could have been. Make it a right. great case here. It sounds like say. American Psycho two is right. like the vibe of getting Mila there. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I do have a question though, Trace. Is your Blu-ray the one that comes with the ice pick or not? <gasps> the ice pick. Uh, no, it's a basic. Uh, that was a collector's edition. This film has. I mean, uh, I guess maybe it's on four K now. But yeah, my Blu-ray is from two thousand seven. Wow. Oh wow. Mm-hmm. So you've been a long time fan. It's an I mean, antique. <laughs> I bought this last week, but <laughs> it's, it's just because there hasn't been a new Blu-ray release since 2007. But there may be a 4K out now. I'm not 100 percent sure. There is, yes. All okay. of his movies have like actually. I was having a lot of frustrating. Uh, I guess I was having frustrations with this because I am a very big uh, physical media person yeah, and yes. was trying to get some of his movies. But like the RoboCop prints, even though they have like new ones come out, they're not always like the best mm-hmm. versions yeah, of they're the often movie. Bad. Yeah, which is like really frustrating. Like this doesn't have, it's not like in circulation a lot. Like Hollow Man, Starship Troopers, I think just got a 4K, but like a lot of his movies like aren't really around a lot, which is so frustrating because you're like, mm-hmm. he's one of our finest auteurs. What are we doing, folks? Criterion Collection. Well, he's not American. Knock, That's knock. true. Come on. Yeah, I, I, I don't think he has any films on Criterion, which is I shocking to me. I believe is RoboCop. RoboCop. So RoboCop is, but it oh, was okay. only for a DVD, so it's out of print now, similar to right. like Michael Bay with like Armageddon and stuff oh, like that. Okay. Okay. Well, Back okay. when they were trying to like, no, we respect action and thriller. Right, right. <laughs> we like popular culture too. Mm-hmm. Well, okay. So rewinding a bit. So because Verhoeven wanted all these changes um, and he would not budge, Esther Haas left the project with producer Erin Winkler. And they bring in this guy called Gary Goldman, called Gary Goldman. And he was subsequently hired to do four different rewrites of this script. After the fourth rewrite, Verhoeven admitted his proposals were quote unquote undramatic and mm. really stupid. <laughs> There's that bluntness we love. Mm-hmm. So by the fifth draft, the script had reverted back to Esterhaus's original version with minor visual and dialogue changes, and Esterhaus received sole writing credit for the film. Hell yeah. Okay. I don't have a ton on casting, but I just want to mention the Sharon Stone of it all. Because at the time, you know, she wasn't very big. She'd done, like, a couple films in the 80s. Like, you know, she got her start doing Wes Craven's Deadly Blessing. She had worked with Verhoeven on Total Recall, which... One of the hottest performances of all time. It's a so good. It's, it's so, so fucking good. She steals the first part of that movie. Oh, my God. You see her come on screen and you're like, halt, slam yes. on the brakes. What she's, are we doing? She's so talented. <laughs> I, will, I will say so have y'all seen the remake of total recall with colin farrell jessica biel and kim uh oh god kate beckinsale another yeah. unfortunately so no <laughs> i will say it's not good however the one good decision that movie makes is that it doesn't kill the yes. sharon stone character played by kate beckinsale she becomes right. a movie length antagonist for the film yeah. yeah she's also the best part of that movie mm-hmm. yes yeah 100 percent. but anyway so Michael Douglas, you know, he's the big star here. You know, he is like big man of the 80s. He wanted an actress of his caliber next to him. So he actually didn't even want Sharon Stone to be in this movie because he viewed this film as a huge risk. So he wanted another star of equal caliber to take that risk with him. He didn't think if it was someone of lesser caliber, then it would be the same type of risk. 
Right. So he was thinking about risk addiction is what you're saying. Oh, oh my God. <laughs> wow. Wow. <laughs> Commit to the bet. Yes. So he recommended Kim Basinger. She declined. But he also Ooh. proposed Julia Roberts, Meg Ryan, Michelle Pfeiffer, Gina Davis, Kathleen Turner, Kelly Lynch, Ellen Barkin, Mariel Hemingway, all of whom declined because of the nudity required for the film. Wow. Whereas Verhoeven just came in with maybe Demi Moore. Hmm. <laughs> Honestly, though, like you hear that list and like Meg Ryan, I think would have like knocked it out of the park. But having seen in the cut, yeah, that's what that's what I'm thinking is like the in the cut Meg Ryan. But then my brain also thinks about Gina Davis and I don't think she would have fit the role. But just like Gina Davis, you know what I mean? Right. Right? I would in (laughs) fact see Gina Davis in anything. I I just think the the story about uh, risk assessment, risk addiction is so funny because you look at how audiences actually reacted to this film and the combination of Mm -hmm. Michael Douglas and Sharon Stone. And you're like, well, he really didn't have anything to worry about. Clearly, he got away completely scot-free as far as the public's concerned. That is true. And, and that's the thing. So, you know, Verhoeven, like, he, it was her performance in Total Recall that said no. It was the switch in her character right before she gets killed, where she goes from, you know, like, evil villain to, like, oh, my God, I'm your wife again. Sorry. Mm-hmm. That was the moment that got it. Um, Sharon Stone was paid $500,000 for a movie with a $49 million budget <laughs> for her performance in this film. It's bananas. It's It's honestly a little insulting. Yeah. It's super insulting, but then you also think, who benefits most from this movie as a result? Like, Michael Douglas has a solid career. You know, he goes on to have a number of even movies within this sort of subgenre of erotic thrillers. Like, he's got Disclosure on the Horizon and a Ooh, couple yeah. of other things. With Demi Moore. <laughs> With Demi Moore. There we go. And she's she is really good. So when you said her name, I was like, oh, I could see it. But at the end of the day the only thing people talk about with this movie is Catherine Trammell. So the pay is shit, but I also think, like, this is the movie that gives us Sharon Stone. But then also, like, takes her away at the same time. Like, you get Mm. this, like, you know, it's a star-making turn, but then when, like, one movie is so directly identified to you and you're so hypersexualized and so vilified and talked about and, like, discussed that it, like, I feel like it has such a taint on unfortunately her career for so long and like obviously she has other good performances like obviously is amazing in casino and some other Mm -hmm. stuff but like she never kind of recaptures the star or heights that this movie gives her and i think it is partially like this movie's fault a little bit you know well no 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 not that not its fault but like america's interpretation of the movie rather yes that that and and that's something i that we will be talking about a lot in these readings of this film because i feel like a lot of it is how stupid people are yes yeah <laughs> oh hugely that's well, what we latch on to as audiences as critics and as people who pay attention to how much money a movie makes too also i just want to say that michael douglas had a new like full frontal nudity clause for this movie Boom. so get I'm out just of like, here okay so you want to have an actress of quote-unquote equal caliber to share the risk with you but you're not going to share the same risk of full frontal Give nudity fuck off yes to yes. drop us the fucking drop the trial what are we doing yes. and he wears that sweater you expect people to be like you're like sexy in a sweater what are you doing here V-neck sir sweater in the gay club an all-time i have thoughts about that sweater (laughs) positive or negative let's just say that they are chris sarandon in fright night Mm. Ah, (laughs) okay okay well let's move into some controversy then okay as if we haven't already discussed some already but 
before filming even started, so there was drama around this movie for a full year before it even had its premiere in March of 92. The script somehow made its way into the hands of Queer Nation, and this was an activist organization founded in March of 1990 in New York City. Um, The basis of it, though, was that the four founders were outraged at the escalation of anti-gay violence on the street and prejudice in the arts and media. So Mm. the group was a way to take action to address those issues. They became known for their confrontational tactics, their slogans, and their practice of outing people. Oof. Yeah. We've talked about these folks before, have we not, Trace? Have we? It just all of those tactics sound very similar to previous episodes. Maybe I'm just thinking of like controversy around Silence of the Lambs and cruising, but like the public outing of people, like that was the thing that they tried to do with Jodie Foster. Oh, you know what? I don't know if it was the same group, but I would not be surprised if it was. Right. Okay. Sorry. Continue. No, no, no. You're good. Um. Okay. So. What I find fascinating is on this Blu-ray and also on the DVD that would have come out in the early 2000s, there are interviews with Queer Nation co-founder Jonathan Katz and one of its activist members, Annette Gaudino, in the making of documentary of this film, which I thought was really interesting. Um, They go into their issues with the film that centers around a homicidal, evil queer woman, uh, which continued a long line of lesbian psychotics in film. Plus, of course, the fact that the quote unquote real lesbian winds up dead and the bisexual woman ends up with a man by the time the credits roll. Mm-hmm. And well, like, there's like <laughs> immediately like, bi- it's like that's like my favorite thing about bi erasure. It's my favorite thing. I love bi erasure. It's so fun, <laughs> so satisfying. Mm. No matter what, like, however you portray it, people on any side of any community will be able to critique it. And it's just like you right. hear in that line, subtle biphobia, just like right there. Right. It's so mm-hmm. beautiful. Uh-huh. The like, real queer woman dies, and the fake queer woman ends up with a man. Right. So what's the point anyway? But even yep. though they were dating. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Well, even I'm just like, okay, well, what does that make Beth? Like, do we not count Beth as a potential bisexual woman who's yes. maybe struggling yes. a little bit with her sexuality? Mm-hmm. Oh, hugely so. That's, I feel like, a huge takeaway. Like, she is, I think, fully, like, down that camp. And, like, honestly, like, maybe she's into the whole murder thing. We don't know. Certainly we find the, out. In the past, she was right. a little bit, at least. But but it's interesting, though, because, like, so when they, I mean, this is the very end of the movie, but when we, after she's dead, and they go through her house, and she has all these clippings of, you know, Catherine, you mm-hmm. could read that as obsessive, like, a oh, romantic obsession, but you can also oh, read that as a fa- an obsession with a murderer, just like what Catherine has with all of the subjects of her books. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, I don't know. It, Layers. It, it's just, in- but, but the film doesn't give you those easy answers, and I think that's why people... I think it's telling to the viewer about the viewer which route they take on their reading of this film. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. It's media literacy at an all-time low at times, it seems. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or selective reading based on what I want to do with this. Like, oh, yes. How can I use this? Yeah. Yeah. It's a lot of agendas. Yes. So, okay. Before filming began, Queer Nation offered a critique of the script and suggested changes that Verhoeven should make. And while most of it was dialogue, they also said that the man should be the killer and the woman should be the detective. (laughs) Oh Uh, my god. Okay. Well, that is a completely different movie. Yeah. (laughs) It's just, and you know, it's not that I necessarily hate that movie, but it's, it's so different from whatever this would have been. Right. I think it also makes the woman inherently less interesting. Yeah. Uh, it's hard to say, right? I think we'd, we'd have to see what kind of script changes they make. Because you can have an interesting detective. Like, Nick is mm-hmm. not an interesting person, but I think that's purposeful. Or maybe that's just my well, agenda reading. 
let me say this. Let's say we, we don't change anything about the script except for the fact that we change, like, the woman, Sharon Stone, is going to play the Nick Curran role, and then Michael Douglas is going to play the Catherine Tremell role. Do you not think there would be cries about, of misogyny about how stupid and idiotic the female detective character is? Right. And how mm. easily, like, she's wooed by this man. Yes! And how she has, you know, like, no agency of her own. That's why I think that Michael Douglas being so under the magna cum laude <laughs> spell, spell um, <laughs> is uh, great because it, it is sort of like this really to the bone portrayal of like how much these types of men are led by their dicks. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I think it, again, it really speaks to kind of like how society chooses to read certain films in that, that that is like really not a problem or wasn't a problem for mainstream audiences until like now when you're looking back at it and you're like, wow, this guy is really stupid. Mm -hmm. But at the time of release, like, everyone just kind of took him as a protagonist at face value. Right. Yes. In, like, all of his movies, too. It's, like, not... It's just, like, Michael Douglas was able to be such a slime ball in so many movies. And, like, people were so on board with it, despite what some of his characters would do. Like, you look at Fatal Attraction, and it's like, he's a bad guy in that movie. But, you know, Glenn Close, oh, she is mm -hmm. so evil. She boils yes, a bunny rabbit. She oh. does try to kill, you know, family. <laughs> Obviously bad. But, like, <laughs> people kind of, like, look over his behavior. And it sort of, like, happens with this. Because so people are so easy to buy into, like, male behavior. Because it's what they see on screen so much. Like, male straight behavior, yeah. rather. Right. I mean, the other thing is, is that people always overlook just how emasculated and, like, the fear of castration that dominates so many of his characters from this period, right? Like you've got fatal attraction, but then also war of the roses. And oh. it's like Michael Douglas basically is just playing the straight dude who gets his dick and balls stepped on by powerful women. And people are like, never seem to pick up on it. The yes. Dream. yes. Have y'all ever seen the war of the roses? No, no. I've not. I've not gone okay. to war with the roses. It, it it is Danny DeVito directed film, and it is oh, Michael Douglas fuck. and Kathleen Turner as a married couple who tried to get divorced. And it is literally their last name is the Rose uh, is Rose, and it is literally just a black pitch black comedy about these two people trying to get divorced who just fucking hate each other. I've Sounds heard, delightful. I've heard so really good things, amazing. and it made so much money. Right, like mm -hmm. it was it was really popular. Danny DeVito director is so weird. Yeah. It's such a weird career. Well, this yes. is a time, too, when R-rated movies can make $350 million worldwide because mm -hmm. <laughs> they just can. Well, <laughs> and we were open to adult fare. I'm, I'm not going to, like, shit on contemporary films because that's not what I'm interested mm -hmm. in doing. But, like, we had more of a varied interest in adult films, black comedies, erotic thrillers. Like, there was just a, a greater appreciation for a wider birth of films. Yeah. Yes. It's all on TV now. It is. That's where it lives. Yeah. That's yeah. why all these movies are not getting remade as TV shows. Yeah. Because well, there's no, yeah. there's, not, there's less financial risk in that, right? You yeah. don't have a box office. You're just going to get eyes on it. But so Verhoeven's reply, though, to all these protests and stuff, he said Basic Instinct was going to be a big film with a marquee star. So it was an excellent target for these types of groups. But I find it interesting that they chose to pick this, and it really shows how selected they are because they didn't come after my film The Fourth Man in 1983, mm -hmm. which has also controversial queer themes in it. <laughs> this is true. Now, I would say, this is me saying this, of course, Queer Nation didn't exist at the time. I would also say that the queer community was in a bit of a different place in 1983. Yeah, uh, yes. Uh, yeah. 
by the time Basic Instinct comes out, you know, like, we have now gone through the AIDS crisis. And you know, the reason Queer Nation was was created was because, yeah, there was a rise in gay crime in the streets. So I I, I get what Verhoeven is saying here, but I think it's a bit, um, it's ignoring some key mm-hmm. cultural milestones with yeah. the queer community. Yeah, one other important thing is that the fourth man very difficult to find nowadays hopefully one day it will show up on a streamer or get like a premium blue or 4k or something it's also a dutch film yes so right. people aren't going to be protesting it because <laughs> no one's going to watch it well but that's what he's saying though he's saying like you're being selective and picking out this film which is going to be a mainstream big wide release and you're not going after the smaller foreign film that not sure. as many people are going to see which means you're going after things that more people are going to watch and not just the content itself right oh my god it's the billy eichner effect what? <laughs> who said that what <laughs> i feel like it's so frustrating and i guess it's like interesting as well because it's you no know, he is saying these things and it's what's so interesting about this movie and it will like dig into it obviously but it's just that there's so many readings you can have kind of throughout time and i think it's a movie that benefits from age almost better like mm-hmm. i think like i'm sure like watching this movie at that time you know there would be and there still are obviously valued arguments against it but i think seeing how far the queer community has come and like what queer cinema has come out since this movie has only like informed this movie better and made certain aspects of its queer representation more engaging and more thought-provoking which Mm -hmm. i don't think maybe at the time you know you would get that as much like you didn't have as many out queer things at the time so when you did have a queer movie you were like oh fuck it's queer representation whereas now while there's still not a lot of queer representation there is more of it and there's a more mixed bag of it and we can dig into what is queer representation now on screen but it's i think just all fueling this one big sphere of discourse that like will continue to be in forever so he goes on to say and again this is like because he's from the netherlands amsterdam specifically and he goes on to say you know he's like homosexuality is not a problem where i come from um Mm. this movie basic instinct is pro-gay it is biological it's there and who cares making queerness into a non-issue is the ultimate sign of being an adult about it it's part of life and while i agree with that i like that sentiment it is ignoring the politics of the time in the u.s and so I, I get it, you know, like if he was releasing, the, he was making this in the, the Netherlands, releasing in the Netherlands for another, uh, 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 that audience, that would make more sense. I don't know. I I don't necessarily view it as irresponsible on his part, but more so uh, he just has his way of thinking and that's what it's going to be. Uh, cultural ideologies be damned. Right. Well, that's why I love Verhoeven because he, he doesn't really care. And if anything, he wants to pump it up more because he knows that it'll shock American audiences. Like, he's extremely Mm -hmm. unconcerned with potential backlash and much more concerned with, like, what backlash do you think I could get out of this? Like, just by Mm -hmm. doing what I want to do. All of his movies are like that. Like, Showgirls Mm -hmm. is, I mean, listen, we are massive Showgirls fan. But, like, (laughs) that's such a great example of a movie that is, like, critiquing, like, American consumerism and capitalism and, like, exploitation of women's bodies and everyone just absolutely lost their fucking minds over it. (laughs) (laughs) So I think that, like, that is definitely par for the course for him. And that's why, you know... Even though, like, this film, Basic Instinct, was one of the first times that bisexual characters were this mainstream, just because, like, so few movies were this mainstream, I can understand, obviously, like, the concern around that. But 
to me, it's one of the most interesting portrayals of bisexuality on screen because it feels like messy in all the ways that mm. you think that it mm. would. It doesn't feel like a political statement, and that's why it's so interesting. But it also, like, she's not a sociopath because she's bisexual. Exactly. exactly. Yes, Ooh. yes. And yet, there's a lot of people who read that as implicitly, like, you can't divorce the two. Like, right. her sexuality is weaponized, and as a result, you can't divorce them. If anything, it's because she is displaying more, quote-unquote, masculine man qualities. Mm -hmm. And you could argue that those are the aspects that make her more likely to be a sociopath because she shares more traits with what we can perceive to be male traits as opposed to female traits. Right. Like, the men are intimidated by her, not, like, by her sexual... I think what's so interesting is, like, you get the one-two punch of in the car where, you know, she has the whole smoking, oh, I found one, that whole cigarette thing. But it comes across as, like, very male... It's domineering. Yes. It's tough. It's, you know, it's like she's very brutish to them. And then you mm-hmm. flip that switch for the interrogation scene where Verhoeven's like commenting upon how male audiences will view this while also the men in the movie are viewing it this same way that male audiences end up doing it. Mm-hmm. But, you know, he's then weaponizing her like feminine sexuality. So she is being bisexual and like exploring how her like gender and like performance identity can like be used for her advantage but it's not like that's informing like her bisexuality isn't the end-all be-all of her character like she's a killer because she's a killer but like she's using the tools in her arsenal to get what she wants so it's like i don't know it's like not like empowering but like I would argue that it a is a little empowering. I would it argue is. that yeah. it is empowering because so we covered this full disclosure. We covered this film on our main feed too. Of <laughs> course, we had we had to do it. And <laughs> I think on that episode, I said that Catherine Trammell is a female character that is so empowered that every social mm-hmm. convention is stripped away from her, including yeah. the social convention of not murdering people. Like, <laughs> no, but, 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 but to me, I mean, I know the film doesn't give us this context, but to me it reeks of a woman who's grown up in a man's world being told that she is less than, and she says, fuck no, I'm not going to do that. Right, and because she's also a successful writer, and it's like men are intimidated inherently by a woman being successful in like a financial situation. Like she is living in a beautiful house with her beautiful girlfriend. Like men are inherently like, wait, I don't mm-hmm. feel like comfortable in this. Like how <laughs> dare this woman be living comfortably and affordably in right. a nice place. Doing so much better than me. <laughs> right. Yeah, Cause these cops walk in and it's like, you know, those cops aren't making whatever fucking money she's making. So they walk into no, her house. God, this, no. this glass beachside mansion. <laughs> beautiful stunning Stunning. second house second house folks it's it's very clearly intentional i mean one of my favorite lines is the first time that all the cops walk into her house and they see sort of like the matching picasso i think that she Mm -hmm. has Mm -hmm. from the guy that she wasn't dating she was fucking and the first line is oh hers is bigger hers is bigger okay (laughs) wait i'm glad you mentioned picasso though because so yes a lot of her house has picasso-esque like designed to it as well as the opening credit sequence which plays over like the geometric kind of ruby pattern Mm -hmm. it's like a prism if y'all don't know picasso has been commonly characterized as a womanizer and a misogynist being quoted as having said to one of his mistresses women are machines for suffering they are goddesses and doormats so it is very intentional that the production design puts the work of a misogynist in this woman's house yeah Hmm. yeah 
I don't want to get you too far into it because we're still in the production. I know. Technically, I know. But oh, sorry, we we're so bad at following. The no, this, this is how it goes, right? Because we're all so fucking excited to talk about it. But I guess the final piece, maybe to get us back into the production, is that yeah. Verhoeven is nothing if not also really fucking good at PR. So Brooke, I think you mentioned, you know, oh, he knows what is going to ruffle feathers for Americans. And so I think that's part of why he is so flippant, at least in this period of his career when mm-hmm. he's making just hit after hit and audiences are eating it up, often misconstruing his messages, but that's fine. But I think at the end of the day, he's like, if people protest my movie, it makes more money because it's more, it's got the notoriety well, factor. Right. Okay, so let, yeah, let, let, let me finish this controversy with these protests then, because you're right. What these did is exactly that. It made this movie more successful. So... About 150 members of this queer nation went and protested the movie while it was filming for about two and a half weeks. They knew every single filming location showed up every night. They would start cutting cables. They would shine lights into the cameras. Eventually, a 300-foot restraining order was filed against the protesters, and producer Alan Marshall tried to have them arrested. But the cops were like, they're not really breaking any laws, so if you want to arrest anyone, you have to do it yourself. Well... That is exactly what happened. (laughs) Marshall had cops bring him protesters one at a time, and they would ask him, do you want this person arrested? And he would say yes or no. This disrupted production, leading to a citizen's arrest of Marshall, which didn't lead to anything within the local police department. (laughs) Just insane. Incredible. Like the fact, I mean, again, this is all like new- this is in the news. Like, yeah. Before this movie is, while this movie is filming, I cannot even imagine. So they don't do them like they used to. I know that. I mean, that's no. how you must show up on opening right. weekend. Right. Like you it's, it's gold. Yeah. So you know, uh, when the movie did come out, members of the lesbian and bisexual activist group Labia, love that, protested against <laughs> the film on its opening night. Um, others also picketed theaters to dissuade people from attending screenings, carrying signs that said "Kiss My Ice Pick." Hollywood promotes anti-gay violence, and in an attempt to spoil the film to dissuade people from seeing it, Catherine did it. Save your money. The bisexual did it. Mm. Verhoeven defended uh, the group's right to protest, but criticized the disruptions they caused, saying, fascism is not in raising your voice. The fascism is in not accepting the no. So it opened in theaters on March 20th, 1992, where it opened unopposed by other new releases, by the way, in the number one spot with $15.1 million. And here's some really good 90s box office trajectory for you. It dropped to the number two slot the following weekend and stayed there for three weeks before climbing back to the number one spot in its fifth week of release and staying in the number one spot for five more weeks. That fucking rules. Yes. Everyone (laughs) went to see this movie. I, when we were covering this movie on the main feed, my mother was like, oh, I saw Basic Instinct when it was in theaters. I think your father and I went, I'm going to watch it again. And she was, um, I think, slightly horrified. And I was like, you saw this in theaters. It was astounding. But I was like, you went to the theater and saw this. Do you not remember? So I think it was just like (laughs) must-watch viewing for everybody. It had to. Oh, for sure. What's the controversy, right? It's like, oh, this is what everyone's been talking about for a fucking year. Any press is good press. Yeah. 
So one of my favorite stories about my in-laws is when I found out that they went to Showgirls on the opening weekend as like a oh date Oh my night. god. <laughs> wow. What? Because mm-hmm. they were like, it's all over the press. Like, this is the big movie for the weekend. So they wanted to go and see what the fuss was about. <laughs> and they were massive Verhoeven fans. Oh, sure. They have the poster in their <laughs> living room. No, they fucking hated it. They were <laughs> Well, okay. Well, Basic Instinct did go into gross a total of 170 17.7 million dollars domestically God, that rules and 223.5 million dollars internationally for a worldwide gross of 353 million dollars again against that production budget of 49 million becoming the fourth highest grossing film of 1992 critical reaction was pretty mixed uh, we've got a rotten tomato score of 56 percent with an average score of 6.1 out of 10 metacritic it's got a 41 out of 100 however Cinema score audiences in 1992 gave the film an average grade of B+, and more mo- in more modern reviews, Letterboxd users have awarded it a rating of 7 out of 10. And I wanted to say one thing before I pass it over to you, Joe. So, this feminist lady... <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> no, um, Camille Paglia, who does the commentary on the Blu-ray, you know, she, she denounced uh, the gay activist and feminist protests against Basic Instinct, calling Sharon Stone's performance one of the great performances by a woman in screen history. And she brings up specific instances of going to see this film multiple times in theaters. And she goes, it's interesting when you read these protests from people and you go to a theater and there's exhilaration and laughter. So her first screening was from a primarily black audience who loved it. You talk to people outside, they'd say, oh my God, it was one of the best movies ever made. She saw it again and with a primarily white audience who also loved it. And she kind of says that there are bits of a grotesque elitism in these groups that lobby these complaints about these films that pretend to speak for the people, but in fact are just kind of going for their own agendas. And I I think there's a lot to unpack there, especially with the fact that she is using just the audience reaction based on the two audiences she saw the film with. But I do think there's a lot to be said about the nature of film criticism in issues like this, especially as we go into films like today. I mean, you know, we saw They Slash Them a few months ago, which had not the best kind of reaction to it yikes slash yikes yeah Mm. uh yeah i think that i don't know i mean you just look at the box office numbers for this like clearly there was certainly a level of popularity and intrigue and like repeat viewing to like get to box office numbers like Mm -hmm, that right and yeah i don't know it's just we talk a lot and again i won't open this pandora's box but we talk a lot about like sexuality and sex on screen and how that has like changed in the the modern landscape but like it used to be like the sex sells aspect was pretty like tried and true Mm -hmm. like if if people thought the movie was like a little salacious a little dangerous Mm -hmm. you were gonna go check it out it felt like being just a little bit bad yeah yeah. And, like, now, I, I'm trying to think of, like, the last time there was, like, a big movie that, you know, made you feel, ooh, a little risky. Let's go to the movie <laughs> to see, like, what the hot goss and, like, what the titillation is. Like, there's not, like, it doesn't really exist anymore. mainstream blockbuster, yeah. I would say, again, it's, it's like made it streaming. to TV. Yeah, Game of Thrones mm-hmm. is probably, like, the most recent one that, like, comes to the Right. Yeah. Everyone's Euphoria. like, oh, we gotta tune in. Yeah. 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 Stuff like that. Hmm. That is very true. Yeah, because I was thinking, my mind immediately went to Blonde, the new uh, yeah, but that's going to Netflix. Right, exactly. And it's like you can already see the discourse like forming. The cloud is coming in. And it's like at the time, like obviously there was discourse on these things, but there were so many more erotic thrillers that it wasn't mm-hmm. like it's hard to believe that each one that came out was full of like this cycle that we currently now go through. If there's a movie that has any sort of like 
blatant sexuality or like sex on screen, you right. know? It's also much easier to just close a newspaper than it is. <laughs> <laughs> Polly's comments are a bit dismissive of, again, like, like the real life politics at the time of what was happening in the queer community. However, at the same time, I also think it is a little bit prescient in, especially in modern days with like film Twitter and how people, I'm using general people, are just looking for something to be upset with. And I'm not really saying Always. that's, the, that's yeah. the case Constantly. here with this film. I mean, maybe it was, but again, I think I think there are societal and cultural things happening in 1992 that sure. would merit some of the response. But it's not like, yeah, again, some people just want to be upset about something because, hey, as you said, Jordan, all publicity is good publicity. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. And I, I think that, like, for basic Instagram in particular, you understand kind of, like, the knee-jerk reaction to be upset about this movie. Because, mm-hmm. like we said, there just wasn't that much mainstream queer content. And especially, mm-hmm. especially not that much specifically bisexual focus. No, right. um, queer content that was, like, reaching this many eyeballs. It's, yeah. you yeah. can understand why you'd be like, no, like, the future of how people look at me as a person is, like, tied up in this movie mm-hmm. kind of you know i think that you know, some very obvious differences notwithstanding the silence of the lambs like comment that you made earlier like has a similarity in terms of like the culture was shaped so definitively by silence of the lambs and by this movie and there's like a couple other like big 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 mainstream movies that were dealing with very delicate themes that audiences mm-hmm. just did not look at mm-hmm. in a critical way and so it's like i really do understand that fear and like that pressure that you're under but i think that you know i wasn't cognizant of watching movies in 1992 because i was not alive yet but when i oh watched God. this movie for the first time i was like <laughs> <laughs> this i think this is like a masterpiece well i think i yeah. think right. the distinction for me between this movie and science of the lambs is that science of the lambs 100 percent absolutely paints buffalo bill as the villain yes. no matter what and i guess you could argue that maybe basic instinct does the same thing with Catherine. however do you want this movie to end with nick Curran? taking down Catherine Chamel. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. You do want to watch Chance Lambs and you want to see Jodie Foster take down Buffalo Bill. Like that is how the movie portrays that. You do not have that here because Nick is a fucking idiot. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. yeah, No, because he's an idiot and he's disgusting as well. Like how he treats Janine Triplehorn is awful. And like how he treats all women in this movie is like kind of terrible. And like he's a shit person. It's like, they're both not great people. And so Mm -hmm. that's what makes it so much more fun is like, everyone is playing in shades of gray instead of in like a black and white moralistic narrative. And like, that's where the juice comes from in this movie. For sure. I feel like what's really stuck out to me and then I promise we will pass it off to show. Um, I think, (laughs) I think what really has stuck out to me on repeat viewings is how empowered Catherine is as a character in basically every scene even her moments of weakness are very empowering in that it feels like like Jordan said earlier she understands the social cachet that crying into a man's arms can have for her Mm -hmm. um and that's what makes the final shot of the movie I think so Mm -hmm. so satisfying because you're like she's never been hoodwinked by this man for a single second and yet the number of people be? who misinterpreted that and were like, oh, wait, so is she the killer? Did Nick just leave an ice pick under the bed? Like, oof. <laughs> Fun fact, though. So Jerry Goldsmith's score, which was Oscar nominated for this film. Good score. He, uh, It's bombastic as all it's good. I, so I, I, I liken it. I liken it to Bernard Herrmann's score for Cape Fear. Like, it's, just, it's, it's a character in and of itself. 
Yes, yes. But the uh, when he submitted the score to Verhoeven, Verhoeven was like, I love all of it, except for the last 20 seconds, which was the score that played over the reveal of the ice pick. And mm. he said, it's too, it is bombastic, but I want it to be more tragic. I, don't, I want this to be kind of like a, a loud, sad reveal for the audience, not a loud like, oh shit, reveal for the audience. And he changed it and he thought it worked out better. Interesting. Huh. Okay. So, anyway, take it away, Joe. (laughs) Okay. So, as we mentioned, we do open over credits of fragments or prisms or some shit, and it's people (laughs) having sex in a mirror over top of the bed, which is like so quintessentially 90s. I love it. Very much. There's a lot of it. It's this and Bride of Chucky. I was going to say, and you're going to go with Bride of Chucky. Also, good movie. (laughs) (laughs) For sure. So we have this faceless blonde woman, very strategic, you know, we're getting to see tits, we're getting to see ass, but we're not getting to see face so that we don't know whether or not it's Sharon Stone. It was, fun fact, (laughs) it was her. Uh, It is her? Yeah, it's her in that scene. Okay, I was gonna say, because I was like, admittedly, I have never um, had hair as long as Sharon Stone while riding a cowgirl on some dude, but... (laughs) It just seems so annoying <laughs> to have your hair much in your face like that as you're riding someone. <laughs> Ridiculous. The, well, it's like all the blocking of it confirm. all. Oh my goodness. <laughs> How salacious are we getting on Mike? My God. It's hairography, right? Like if you're into it, you're not thinking, ooh, my hair's getting into my face. You're like, Jesus, this D. But, you know, it's getting in her mouth. She's, like, spitting it out. Like, oh. Well, but it's also, like, Chekhov's um, pelvic thrust. Because, again, Mm -hmm. we are teased two more times in this movie with Sharon Stone riding Michael Douglas, cowgirl. And maybe possibly going to arch her back and, like, stab him with an ice pick. And I love that we have this opening scene. It's like, oh, shit. (laughs) Chekhov's sexual move. It's yes, so funny. The the like rearing back. Is, yeah. Right. It, yeah. It, uh, is she gonna grab it? Uh, is she yes. gonna break his dick or is she gonna stab him with her specialty dildo? Yes. Um yes. also though, I, I've never noticed it before, but so when she starts stabbing him, it goes through his eye and yeah, out his nose. In a a yeah. split second shot, and it is awesome. It's visceral as fuck. It's very sexual. It's very orgasmic. Mm-hmm. Yes. It's penetrative. Sex and violence, they're mm-hmm. all They're insane. all connected, baby. <laughs> I mean, I do love that this opening sequence, it's literally, hey, what did you come to the movie for? We're giving you sex and death, intertwined, first two minutes. Yeah. I mean, people's basic instincts are foot front and center in this entire movie. Hey, hey. Leonardo pointing at the screen. He said the title. <laughs> <laughs> as much as I don't really want to give Esther House more credit than he deserves, I do think he there are so many there are so many elements of the script where you're like, yeah. yeah. I mean, those yeah. first two minutes combined with the title, like mm-hmm. even that in and of itself, you're just like, yeah, yep. you know, you know what you're doing. <laughs> yeah. The cocaine worked, baby. Oh yep. my yeah. God. Him and Stephen King, they've made an empire on it. And Shane Black, <laughs> the holy trinity. Ah, okay. So we are introduced the next morning to San Francisco detectives, Nick Curran, played by Michael Douglas, as well as his... Definitely not in love with him. Partner, Gus Morin, played by George Dunsta. 
So they arrive at Johnny Boz's crime scene. So this is the man who was killed. <laughs> and we're we're keeping it dirty and salacious because we're looking at both the cum stains as oh. well as the coke residue on the sheets immediately. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um I love that Douglas just goes very impressive when he sees the mm-hmm. cum stains. And then it's also yet yeah, residue of coke on his lips and the tip of his penis. <laughs> mm, How did delicious. that get there? Oh, it's the back of her throat because because when you do coke, it drips down the back of your throat. And no, so... sweetie, I got it. Okay. It was. A... <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was amazing! Uh, this is the iconic. He got off before he got off the line. Uh-huh. Once again, that's what they pay you the big bucks for, right? Yes, it's, it's all catchphrases. It's like if Esther House was a film critic now, he would just be getting pull quotes all the time. Correct. <laughs> So we're also introduced to uh, several of the male characters in this movie in this opening scene, including Lieutenant Philip Walker, who was played by Dennis Armed. That's kind of uh, Douglas's boss. And then there's Captain Talcott, who I think is the guy who's just kind of lurking against the wall. And he's played by Chelsea Ross. Okay. And none of these people matter. Um, so this movie is like a smorgasbord of male character actors that I have seen in a million of other movies before. Mm-hmm. Yes. Chelsea Ross. I was like, where do I fucking know this guy from? He is Christine's dad in Drag Me to Hell. Oh, wow. wow. Okay. Like, he looks like a Bobo Billy Bob Thornton. Yes. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, absolute king Wayne Knight. I, Wayne Knight sweating in this movie is a character so in of itself. Um, Stephen Tobolowski coming in. Yes, oh, yes. Love God, it. yes. Mitch Pileggi. Mitch, yeah, Mitch Pileggi. Uh, James Rebhorn, who is I, I didn't know he was dead, but he I always know him from Independence Day. But he has like fifty million like random character actor credits. But he's the guy mm-hmm. that is psychologizing Nick after oh, Roxy yeah. gets killed in the car crash. Right. Yes. Yeah. It's a movie of good guys, like faces yeah. that we don't see on screen anymore because everyone looks unique and has a bit and they all yes. work really mm-hmm. well. Yes. <laughs> well, and they're not all like traditionally beautiful. Like, oh, again, exactly. not to shit on contemporary movies, but these people are not appearing on CW shows or the 1992 equivalent. Yeah. Correct. Um, fun fact, though, apparently Steven Spielberg watched this movie while, during pre-production for Jurassic Park and said, that's my Dennis Nedry when he saw Wayne Knight. So it's, good. It's the okay. best thing in the world. The only thing scarier than a dinosaur is Sharon Stone. <laughs> right. Sharon, you <laughs> All right. So they zero in on Catherine Trammell, who was the murdered man's girlfriend, fairly quickly. So Nick and Gus go off to interview her, but they uh, go to the wrong house, by which I mean they go to her first house and where they meet her girlfriend, Roxy, who is played by Leilani Sorrell, and she's pretty cool and pretty awesome and then she's like you want to go to the beach house i'm gonna tell you something really funny is that i forgot this character was in this movie because i haven't seen it in 10 years and when she walked in i was like wow sharon stone looks different Mm -hmm. she looks different (laughs) a hair Hmm. i also thought the same thing the first time i watched it i was like i did not think that sharon stone looked like that but oh look at that they got us all they tricked us use that magna cum laude brain of theirs (laughs) Well, it's like you they walk in and you think, well, where's Sharon Stone? Because we're told this is Catherine's house and we know she's playing Catherine. And then you're just like, oh, yeah, OK, I guess I just got to follow the plot a little bit. But it is kind of gross that she's dating someone who looks very similar to her. Oh, like the queer community? <laughs> right. right. Yeah, I mean, yeah, what are, yeah, what are we doing here? Accuracy, baby. <laughs> Call it homophobic, but it's not a lie. <laughs> 
I mean, Trace, the movie literally opens with them having sex with a mirror above them. So it's like, yes. obviously, Catherine likes looking at herself. You know, I will say, I thought that I was free from that stereotype. And the first time I ever showed my sister uh, the, like, Instagram account of mm-hmm. this very pretty influencer who I had a little bit of a crush on. She was like, oh, no. she looks exactly <laughs> like you. Telling on myself. <laughs> no, but you know, the, the, cause, okay, I mean, like, personal question. Do y'all, do y'all ever like looking at yourself in the mirror when you're uh, uh, in flagrante? And murdering? No. Nah, <laughs> you don't know when what they're fucking. asking. Um, yes. Ooh. <laughs> I'm revealing far too much on no, this podcast. My anecdote this. was going to be when I was in high school, my my you know, my boyfriend and I didn't have places that we could just go f- like fool around. So we <laughs> we went to the changing room of a oh, I want to say a Macy's or a Foley's. And oh my god! I fooled around in there, but I I, I, I can't, there's a mirror there, so I wound up looking at myself and I was like, oh, this is really fucking hot. <laughs> <laughs> Trace is also a huge narcissist, so this tracks. <laughs> oh, yeah. I was Basically say, his first threesome. Um, I'm a Leo, and I feel like it really just checks all the boxes. Mm-hmm. It really just like show the difference between us, because I'm so deeply insecure <laughs> that if I like see a mirror, I like run the other way. I'm like, I can't look at myself. So when we all go to the club together, Brooke and I are going to go hang out on our own. Yeah, we're <laughs> going to have a good time. Jordan and I will be like, wait, there's a mirror in this room somewhere. We need to hide. <laughs> Block it. Throw a fucking glass at it. I don't know. Oh, yeah. Okay, so we head to the beach house, and this is where we are introduced to Catherine herself, and I just immediately Sharon mm-hmm. Stone absolutely commands the screen, but she's not doing this big showy performance. She's yeah. very calm. She's very cool. She's calculated, but she's also interacting with Gus and Nick in completely different ways. Yeah. Yeah. She's playing Nick for a fucking fool. Immediately. But also just <laughs> having, a, I wasn't dating him. I was fucking him. That mm-hmm. is again, not something you would typically see a female character say in a film, especially in 1992. 100%. And I love, I love, again, I'm not saying that these are inherently masculine characteristics, because again, women should be able to do and say what they want in regards to sex. But in the realm of film and mainstream media, this is absolutely, these are absolutely ma- manly, masculine characteristics that are being put in this woman. And I fucking love that. Like, go, go her. Kill anyone yes. you want. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And like she, Sharon Stone's performance is absolutely brilliant because she walks such a fine line of being commanding and quote unquote traditionally masculine. I completely agree with like what you just said. And yet she's so flirtatious at the same Mm -hmm. time. And it's, it's that combination that is like so disarming. Well, so here's the thing though. So based on the the way this movie plays out i believe that she had been targeting nick for a very long time so she she had this played out from like probably months ago the only reason she got with this boss guy and murdered him in san francisco was to get nick on the scene (laughs) yeah i mean fill the premise of her book yeah it's the whole fucking cigarette thing where it's like oh my god you don't smoke well guess what oh no i found a cigarette here hey you want to come back from to smoking she knows uh, what i believe i mean i think in a lesser movie or movie that came out today we would get a flashback scene that shows her like after her last book just came out yes and she's reading the newspaper and she comes across that article about nick's uh uh, shooting those tourists right and then she gets a (laughs) moment (laughs) wait wait, pump the brakes we did not we have not even mentioned that like the impetus of like his horrible 
actions that he did off screen mm-hmm. that we don't see. He's mm-hmm. the worst. He was fully addicted to coke. He killed people. <laughs> and what is Tourists. he for it? Mm-hmm. Nothing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, that that's actually where we start to go because after this interview, this is when we're introduced to Jean Triplehorn and she's playing Dr. Beth Garner who is his therapist but he's there for mandated appointments because he needs to be cleared by internal affairs for this shooting and of course he's like oh well I'm fucking you and I've stopped drinking and I'm not smoking so clearly I'm cured of all of my ills please release me from these meetings so He's working his ass off to get off the sauce. I think. Says. I oh think gosh. with with the claims about misogyny against this film, I think the Gene Triplehorn character is probably the biggest case study for it. Agreed. At the same Agreed. time, I do think it's a case though of the men in the film treating her like this, and not the film treating her like this. But I am open mm. to rebuttals for that statement. I, I... <laughs> as much as, as much as I love Verhoeven and I love this film, and I won't go too much into detail unless we want to, but there's like two instances of kind of like I want to say bad onset behavior from mm-hmm. the creative team, and one of them is the sex scene between. Oh yeah, well, yeah. if we even want to call it sex, it. this is this is like date it's rape. It's a rape. rape. Yeah, yeah. She, she's she. The subtitle says no. <laughs> Like yeah, 50 no. times. Yeah. yeah. No, it's awful. It's really not good. And apparently, like, there was, you know, deliberate miscommunication about how rough that scene would be. And same goes for the infamous Sharon Stone, like, right. crossing on crossing moment, which we will, I'm sure, talk about later. But I think that, like, the film, in a certain way, even though I love Dean Triplehorn's performance in this, and I do think that uh, the character of Beth is very interesting and, mm-hmm. like, morally gray and all these really, like, fascinating ways. Right. The film does, I think, set her up for failure a little bit. And then oh, they, yeah. she doesn't have, like, quite enough screen time or, you know, just the, the script doesn't care about her enough to nope. give her an element of proper agency. She she's kind well, of there but she but she's like your secondary femme fatale because she right. is meant to be a red herring of sorts and mm-hmm. and what my feminist lady says and i don't really know if i fully buy into this but um what polia says in the commentary she goes many of the scenes between beth and nick that some people have interpreted as misogynistic seem to be closer to apache dances so again i love that we're bringing in like indigenous culture to this, <laughs> this is she goes that is where sex war is at its maximum love slash hate relationships between men and women explodes volcanically the energy of those scenes difficult as they are to watch pours off the screen and it would be hard to replicate that without that same kind of energy Hmm. yeah i mean again it's not really a defense in my mind but more so i guess how she's kind of rationalizing her excusing these scenes right i have an, an interesting reading that sort of it doesn't really speak to that but it does speak to the portrayal of the two main women so it's by celestino delato and it's called the margins of pleasure female monstrosity and male paranoia in basic instinct from a Mm. film criticism journal so celestino says uh like she she's really drawing on the kind of neo-noir roots of the film so she says that catherine is actually presented you know most people go oh catherine she's a traditional femme fatale right but throughout a lot of the film, she's also this kind of long-suffering, honest, submissive woman who offers the male hero the rarely consummated possibility of a stable, uncomplicated relationship. So this idea that Nick has where they're going to settle down, they're going to procreate, and they're going to live happily ever after. Like, that's who she becomes right. to him. And the film kind of wants to lean into that, even though we're still never sure we can trust Catherine. 
But then on the flip side, we get Beth, who starts in this sort of virginal role where, you know, she she's so kind to Nick and she just wants to help him and be the good wife and that kind of thing. But then the film ends up blaming her for all of these murders and then redefining her as the castrating party. So it kind of flips these conventional representations of two stereotypes and makes both characters dangerously fluctuate between them and thereby uh, sort of producing a critique of cultural female stereotypes by revealing their instability and unreliability. So that sees it as like a positive that these women are sort of inscrutable and changing their gender roles. Also very bisexual. Right. (laughs) And I mean, I think on that too, like Catherine, there's the whole thing with the quote unquote rugrats or kids in that like they come to it twice. And it's like the first Mm -hmm. time she is down for the Rugrats. And at the end of the movie, it's no Rugrats. Like it's the relationship is not like a heteronormative perfection idea of like what a mainstream relationship would be. So again, she's like subverting at like these like last minutes, you know, telling him like, no, this is not what Mm -hmm. we're going to have. And he's okay with that. So he's like Mm -hmm. become comfortable with the dynamic and like the shifting power complex that she has. And however you want to define the last shot of the movie, in, in my opinion, it's like the ice pick under the bed does not say that she's never going to kill him. It just says right. that she's not going yes. to kill him tonight. Oh, like, yeah. This is <laughs> yes. very much like she is oh, not yeah. a tamed woman by any means. She's got no. that ice pick on lock. Yeah, she's she's has it at the ready. I read one one review that was like, as long as he keeps giving her orgasm, she will not stab him because she needs, she only really brings it out when she needs uh, that kind of satisfaction, right? Ooh, like, that's see, why we see her get off in this opening scene. I think it's going to be once her book comes out, she needs a new book idea. Let's get rid of, because, uh, oh, uh, sure. spoiler alert, in Basic Instinct 2, she does mention Nick, uh, but doesn't really allude to what happened to him. <laughs> oh, bummer. <laughs> Um, also, this is not related to anything we've been talking about, but y'all know that really iconic line in Showgirls where she says Versace instead of Versace? Yes. Right. Perfect line, yes. We do have a line in the earlier scene where the cops are all talking about the body, where the, 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 the one cop is like, the scarf was Hermes. Hermes. It's expensive. Yes. <laughs> I mean, that's alluding to class to me. True. Yeah, yes, definitely. Well, but that, it, that it is in Showgirls like too, I would say. Chick. Yes, yeah. 100%. Yeah. They're hearing Paul direct, and they can't tell over the Dutch accent, and they're like, "What does he want us to say?" Hermes. Like, are we is talking Hermes? about like gods? Hermes. What are we Hermes, doing? Yes. Hermes. <laughs> so uh, at the precinct, after Nick gets out of this uh, meeting with Beth. We get this info dump on Catherine, right? So she's still the prime suspect. She's the person of interest. So they've dug up a bunch of dirt on her. And we, as the audience, get we get to reap the rewards. So we learn that she went to Berkeley for psychology and English, that she is apparently worth $110 million after yeah. her parents' suspicious death, and that she has written a book that is identical <laughs> to Boz's murder. And I love that this is just like, here's two minutes of everything you need to know about this woman. Go. The convolution with all of these murders (laughs) that Catherine is connected with. I love it. All she it's does is so like great. commit murders or incite murders around her. But right. but the film, like it does. It, I feel like a lesser film would give us these flashbacks, and I'm so fucking happy the movie trusts us to be moderately intelligent to follow along with the film. 
to the movie's then ultimate detriment for how audiences mm. then watch the movie and right. can't pick up on those things. But you that know? is just too bad. But that's oh, agreed, yeah. agreed. Yes. Oh, completely. We've agreed. mentioned yeah. media literacy, and it's a thing where and Joe and I had this discussion all the time where it's like how much of the responsibility falls on the film to mm-hmm. handhold its audience and be right. a, a lecture for them, essentially, and how much of the responsibility falls on the audience to do the work themselves. And I think it's a conversation. It's a debate that's going to be everlasting till the end of time. Sure. I very much fall in the people are stupid. They need to do the fucking work themselves camp. <laughs> yeah, I completely agree because art is not there to like deliver a moral diatribe, at right. least like, you know, art of this caliber. Like we said, movies for adults are not meant to teach you a morally good or a morally bad lesson. They're meant to be a work of art and right. you're meant to interpret them. That is true, but I feel like there's a slight slippery slope when we're talking about mm-hmm. things like mysteries and noirs. Like, uh, infamously, there's a Bogey and Bacall film called The Big Sleep, which is based on a Dashiell Hammett novel. And the novel is notoriously difficult to decipher, which therefore produces a notoriously difficult to decipher movie. And you're yes. like, I don't <laughs> know that anyone could have solved this fucking mystery because you didn't play fair. Well, but but I think I think there's a difference, though, between convoluted plotting mm-hmm. and messaging in a film. Right. Exactly. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Agree. <laughs> yeah, you you still want to you want to make the highest caliber of movie possible. You want to you know be using the art form to give your audience the best experience possible. But yeah. you don't need to say what's right or what's wrong. You have protesters calling this movie biphobic, homophobic, and then you have the director of the film saying this film is pro-gay. So both both sides valid issues with both of them. But again, it's just like, well, okay, what what do you make of that, right? Like, how how can Verhoeven make his pro-gay stance more clear if that's what his intent is? Or you could say, well, the film doesn't do a good enough job of getting that intent across. Yeah. I mean, I think that this movie will always have, like, an element of debate to it. And that's why it's so good in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. That's why it's so enduring. And I think, like, it lets you draw your own conclusions about it and like form your own basically like how empowering do you think this movie is how like pro gay do you think it is as an individual like it gives you the space to do that and i think most good movies should have that space like for individuals and not for like you know audience as a whole but for like individual yeah i mean i think that's why i often get frustrated with people when they take opinions of films from hearsay like from secondhand sources or something so you know not to circle back to the critic debate but especially when people say oh well this movie's biphobic so i'm not going to watch it you're like okay but no you need to watch it so you can make up your own informed right if anything that makes me want to watch it more to be like how how is it biphobic (laughs) right no exactly exactly but it also sounds like all four of us appreciate like challenging material. And yeah. I don't know. I, I mean, I think we all have like very strong convictions and want to debate and have conversation about it. And I appreciate that some people are like, oh, I just need to know if a film is going to waste my time or make me angry. So yeah. right, that is also right. fair. Yeah. I would not be in this business if I did not want to engage critically with movies. Yeah. <laughs> We'd all have very boring podcasts, wouldn't we? <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> Okay, so uh, speaking of weird decisions that this movie makes, uh, so they, they, they're like, we need a psychological profile of who this Catherine woman is. And instead of just having 
Beth Garner yeah. do this. <laughs> she needs a man. <laughs> this is where we bring in. Yeah, I mean, I think again, you could read this as part of the critique or the commentary on like female roles, male roles, and so on. But yeah, enter Stephen Tobolowski so that he yeah. can say. Plus. There's two possibilities. The writer is either a psychopathic killer who planned the murder years in advance or someone is setting them up. So I will say this, though. I mean, in defense of her bringing in Tobolowski to do this for her, I would argue it's premeditated on her part because she knows that she has a history with Catherine and doesn't want that right. to compromise the investigation later. At least not yet. Not yet. Later right. on, she'll right. get over that. Yeah. But also, she's like... Can I bring in character actor Steven Toblowski? And right. like, the answer should be yes. yes. Like, oh, what are possible. you doing? Yeah, you have the choice. You do it. Come on. When he fucking showed up in Veronica Mars season two, I was just like, yeah. See, yes, for yes, me, yes, he's yes. Freaky Friday, Lindsay Lohan's awful math teacher. Oh, a classic. Oh, classic. But hey, so no shade to Steven Toblowski or his physical traits. I've never found him particularly attractive. However... <laughs> However, is that relevant? <laughs> but the relevance is that in this scene, I found him very attractive, <laughs> and I don't know why. <laughs> okay, <laughs> psychological competency—a real turn on. Right here. Well, I mean, he's actually smart in this, whereas I feel like in most appearances, he often kind plays of this kind of buffoon. Yeah. 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 yeah, I always associate him with Bella Louise. Mm, right. So. Okay. Groundhog yeah. Day. You know, oh I also was so a very parents. big One Day at a Time fan, which he's amazing. <laughs> so, <gasps> oh my god! Yes, because he oh, dates Rita Moreno. <laughs> yeah, he and Rita Moreno, a power couple. Is that a hot couple? Brooke, I will tell you this right now: that when that show was canceled and then renewed and mm-hmm. then canceled and then again, again. <laughs> yeah, was, what a, it was a what a whirlwind! It was it horrible. Was, but yeah, Stephen Tobolowski, he played um, Justina Machado's boss, who wound up dating her mother, Rita Moreno, mm-hmm. in one day at a time, and it was great. Yeah, it's a great yeah, show. Highly so recommend. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if you Super want something a little lighter after the <laughs> insanity that is Basic Instinct, just throw on One Day at a Time. You'll have, and it's you'll have a great time. And it's, and it's super queer. Very queer. Yeah. Yeah. One Tobolowski at a time. Yep. <laughs> uh, and with that, we move on. Okay, so we get possibly the most artistically lit scene in this movie when we get to this walk and talk to the elevator where, yes, we are introduced to Wayne Knight's John Corelli. Uh, I couldn't figure out if he's, like, from the DA's office. Who could care? This is his, like, basically one big sequence. Yeah. And he doesn't want Catherine to be brought in, but Nick already has a read on her. So he thinks he knows exactly how she's going to react. So they're like, cool, okay, fine, bring her in. So they go to pick her up at the beach house. This is when we notice that, yeah, she's collecting all kinds of information on him already. And of course, she is very comfortable changing into something more comfortable in front of him. (laughs) This is hot. (laughs) Can't lie. And I mean, this outfit, so Mm -hmm. iconic. The iconic, right? So she's got the hair up and the bun. It's a very sort of like tightly controlled. This movie wants to engage with very light BDSM, but the bun to me is like, whoo, she's in control. Because there's a lot of, like, Verhoeven was doing his Hitchcock in this movie. Like, he's doing a lot of Hitchcock. And I feel like the outfit and the hairstyle that she puts on for this interrogation scene, I feel like he's doing Tippi Hedren from The Birds. I was going to say, like, Kim Novak. Yeah, May- oh, maybe so, yeah. yeah. Because, I mean, I'm a big noir fan, but, like, if you look at noir, noir, so much of it is set in San Francisco, like, mm-hmm. neo-noir and noir mm-hmm. itself, and, like, yep. there's so many pulls of this movie just, like, referencing past noirs, and so, mm-hmm. I, and Vertigo is, like, you know, that quintessential one, so I feel like if you, like, 
cast her in a green light in this movie, yeah. it would look like, you know, Kim Novak stepping yes. out, you know? 100%. Yes. Yeah. I will keep this very quick, but, like, erotic thrillers as kind of, like, the follow-up to noir and being, like, a type mm. of neo-noir themselves is so interesting to me because noir, yep. like, traditional noir, is about the underbelly of American society, and it was kind of, like, about people's secretive, like, not socially acceptable desires, and Mm -hmm. erotic thrillers are almost Mm -hmm. completely the same thing, where, again, it's the sex and violence, like, tangled up together, and I just, I think that it's it's just so smart to connect the two and have them be like genres that sit side by side. Well, but also erotic thrillers can are allowed to now because of the time period give that sexuality that noirs weren't that allowed noirs to do at the time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. That's why Brian De Palma and you know our boy here get it because they're just like y'all want the underlying sex that's been there in a noir. It's always we been got there. you here. 100%. It is. Yeah. So okay, one thing, and then we'll go back to Joe. But like, whenever the partner <laughs> gets killed in the elevator, was that not a direct homage to Dress to Kill? Has oh, to be. I think so. Yeah, it has yeah. to be yeah. right. <laughs> So he's doing... And I have a read for that. He's doing Hitchcock <laughs> and De Palma doing Hitchcock. Yes. <laughs> yeah. We're three layers deep, baby. We gotta get to the fourth. Well, and and don't forget that this also intersects with queerness, right? Like mm-hmm. exactly. San Francisco, yeah. the gay mecca on the West Coast, yeah. but also so much queerness embedded in these with like characters who are sort of like sexually fluid or challenging mm-hmm. gender normativity and so on. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Oh. Okay, so we picked up Catherine, and now we get this fantastic car ride scene where, again, she's flirting with Nick, she's antagonistic with Gus, you know, talking about how she's a a great liar because that's what book authors have to be, and this (laughs) fucking shit with the cigarette. My favorite line reading in this entire movie is when she just goes, it won't last. (laughs) well also so um because by this time um the anti-smoking like campaign had really 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 taken off so by having Catherine she's a a villain (laughs) so she smokes it's not it's not that she's a villain it's more so that she's going against societal norms by doing Uh, something that society says is wrong Mm -hmm. and look as a person who has never once in their life had one puff of a cigarette there is nothing cooler on screen than when someone smokes like, it is yeah. just an inherently true cinema trope. So, yeah. like, mm-hmm. even if you're a villain and you're smoking, you still you look, look cool, cool and sexy. Like, yeah. come on. <laughs> Back when I was a regular smoker, um, if I saw someone smoking in a movie, I was like, fuck, I need a cigarette, like, right now. Like, immediately. Uh-huh. I feel like the cigarette industry is like, cool, mission accomplished. We did it, Joe. <laughs> oh, for sure. But, but, but hey, look, I am of the mindset that I make my own decisions. And if I die of lung cancer, that is absolutely my fault. Uh, no. You don't think it's my choice to smoke to keep smoking cigarettes? I think they have highly addictive properties that make you think you have a choice in it. But that's any drug. (laughs) Yes, but they will all harm you and possibly kill you. Look, all I want to say is, Trace, don't die, though. Don't. Right? We we want you. Well, the good good news is I don't smoke cigarettes regularly anymore. I only smoke them when I drink. Uh, <laughs> Ask him how often he drinks. You can Let's kill move two on. vices in one. No, 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 no. When I was when I was nineteen, I was a pack a day, and now I'm a pack a month. That's good. Very yeah, good. exactly. So it's fine. Progress. Progress. Better, you are doing better than Michael Douglas. Michael Douglas there we go. Don't smoke, children. Here. Right. For all of our underage listeners, you first, don't. what are you? Doing? Yeah, what are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> okay. 
let's get to this interrogation scene. Uh, so this is being conducted in apparently like the spottiest lighting basement ever. I love it. Well, what, 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 what is what is this architecture in this interrogation room? What is what police station has this? Yeah, it's, it's, an aesthetic it looks one, like Blade Runner. Yes, <laughs> you know it is like a sci-fi setting. Hmm. Paul's like, this is what the American police departments <laughs> look like. It oh honestly God. kind of feels that, right? Like someone who's never been inside a police precinct right. is like, oh, it yes. must be lit with shadows. Yes. Right. Why are we all doing bad accents? Oh, I'm so... Jordan's Verhoeven impression I is uh, a constant in any movie. And sometimes yeah. it's where we're not even covering Verhoeven. Of course. So it was oh, bound to happen. Oh, season. Oh, my God. It's the way the lesbians into Christmas. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Oh, you know Verhoeven loved Happiest Season. Oh, yeah. he loved it. He's thinking up his uh, sequel now. You know, there's a lot you can do with Christmas decor. Right. <laughs> He's thinking of a movie in which Kristen Stewart goes and kills her wife and runs away yes. with Aubrey Plaza. I mean, I would watch it. Can't lie. I would be there. No, but that but that's lesbophobic. It's anti-lesbian because <laughs> we have a lesbian killer in the movie. Boo. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I'm so happy to leave that movie behind because ugh, I just was not a fan. Anyway, um, okay, so let's get to the most infamous scene yeah. of all. And yes, we can acknowledge that Sharon Stone was lied to or there's a lot of contention around uh, how this scene came about. But yes, we do get the infamous pussy shot as she uncrosses her legs. I think the important thing, and look, I am not excusing anything Verhoeven did because look, I'm going to believe Sharon Stone in this scenario, but here's the mm-hmm. thing. Both of them are fine with each other. This literally has amounted to a disagreement that neither one of them really cares about. Right. Yeah. They're, it's sort of all well and good now, which is good. And, and look, I'm not a famous actress. I am not in the position Sharon Stone would have ever been in. And like, like I, I understand. There's a big issue of consent here. Mm-hmm. I lack modesty to the point where I wouldn't personally care <laughs> if this were happening to me. But I realize that I'm also a 33-year-old gay man living in the year 2022. And I'm not a movie star. Right. I think it's just about, like, if she had the power. like she. I think it's, like, ultimately boiled down to, like, there was a quote where she said, like, she doesn't mind that the shot's in the movie. It's just that she mm-hmm. wanted to have the power to right. like have the shot in yeah. the movie to and like have the choice. authority of it. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And yeah. so I think that's really where it, it kind of boils down to now, which is like, I think also, you know, not to have this be about like, oh my God, like what we should talk about, but it is like such a potent issue nowadays and like making sure that people do have the right to like choose what we see on screen and mm-hmm. not being exploited by, you know, powerful male directors and everything. But yeah. that's, conversation for a whole different thing but right no it's just that you want to have autonomy the same amount of autonomy in every moment even if you've agreed to you know a full frontal nudity clause Mm -hmm. whatever it is but i think that like definitely there it being very well documented the two of them have like made up and there was never any like long-term ill will makes this much much more palatable yeah like was this great no but is it all fine now and have we like for all intended purposes, learned our lesson. Yes, I, I do. I yeah, Verhoeven very, very much comes across as more of the the bad guy here. Oh, certainly. I I, I was fascinated reading quote, Stone's quote though. That was very much like a. But I think it makes the movie better because yeah. this really is a power play. Because the thing is this: when she uncrosses her legs and flashes her vulva to these men, they <laughs> all lose their shit. Yes. 
then they immediately like you know she lights a flame to be like i've got you motherfuckers and they all have to do this thing they're like they have to like reset the room to reestablish their dominance in the scenario because her making Mm -hmm. this move made her the dominant person in this interrogation scene yeah it's so rare that you see a female character who understands sexuality this intimately yes, completely right. because there are so many female characters that are like oh she uses her sexuality as a weapon but no i have yet to see a female character on screen that does it in a mainstream film that does it this intentionally and with such right. a degree of precision it's not just about being sexy it's specifically about the small actions that she's doing 100 percent. and that's why we talk about you know people are like talking about misogyny you know that is men hating women and I don't view any of this movie as men hating women, be it the characters or the creators. I view it more as men fearing women. And that, to me, is yeah. not misogyny. Oh, sure. That's just how it should be. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> um, sorry. No, no, but I, com- I completely agree. There, it's, a, it's a degree of, like, you know, you hate what you fear, you right. fear what mm-hmm. you hate. Like, if something is dangerous to you, you should be combative towards it because it means that like that thing can overtake you and in this case it's powerful women. exactly right i mean there's nothing harder than a powerful woman also could so, not like, agree more could not come agree on more. fellas <laughs> well that one of the things i like the most about this scene too is i mean we haven't really talked about how this movie is basically the male gaze embodied right um so there's a lot of like lecherousness it's from the perspective of most of these men but in this scene specifically Verhoeven shoots it so that everybody's like leaning forward and you can see that it's almost like combative right like the men they're also trying to like push their bodies closer to her and she's drawing them in but also then she's using it in such a way to say like I do have the power the uncrossing the legs the lighting makes it so that we can barely see her at times and then she uses the cigarette to illuminate her face and so on and i just i love that the movie understands how much of a power play this is but also that she, like we understand implicitly as the audience that she is fully in control of this mm-hmm. yeah and how choreographed it is there's so i love all the camera zooms in this scene mm-hmm. and just how how designed the scene is as a whole it really reflects like the power dynamics that are at play mm-hmm. oh 100 percent. i will say having just talked about suspiria the 2018 mm-hmm. film yes. last month i really picked up on the line when she says i like hands and fingers and i was like that is such a like lesbian bisexual thing to say <laughs> of course I- I wrote that down as well. It's a great line. (laughs) Um, Okay, so after all of this, they're still not sure if they can trust or believe her, so they make her take a polygraph test, which she passes easily. And of course, we're all like, well, yeah, she does, because she's so cool. That's movie logic, though, right? (laughs) Oh, yeah. Either that or she, like, did it for a book one time and she knows how to pass. I mean, this movie is operating on a logic that, like, does not exist in human form. Like, if you were a one one hundredth competent, like, detective, you would be, oh, she did it. Case closed. Here Mm -hmm. we go. But Nick is like, I have an erection. So, like, let me see where this goes. Exactly. And just follows his dick. So, apparently, the passing of the polygraph, though, is... I, I don't know how accurate this is, but this is in the bonus features of the film. It's a trait of sociopathy. Because, again, a whole right. thing of a lie detector yeah. test is that your your heartbeat, you know, raises right. when you tell it's a lie. Whereas, if you're a sociopath, you don't have that issue, quote-unquote, because you don't think what you're doing is wrong. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. And you and you don't have normal emotional reactions to things either. Right. So. Mm-hmm. Exactly. 
<sighs> and the funny thing is, is that Catherine sees a kinship in Nick. So like when he offers to drive her home and it's raining, so it's like sexy and sultry out. She actually says, oh, you know, I guess we both got away with this because you got away with your your murder. And I guess I just got away with mine. And he's like, wait, what? And then she's like, OK, bye. Thanks for the ride. <laughs> So Nick immediately goes to this cop bar. He begins drinking. So, okay, that's one vice back. And this is when we're introduced to Marty Nielsen from Internal Affairs. And he is played by Daniel Vaughn Bargain. Hey, wait, Joe, what do you know this man from? Lord of Illusions, obviously. Oh my god, I'm literally like, it's the faculty, but you're totally right. It's Lord of Illusions. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, also the faculty, yes, but... So this dude shows up basically to antagonize him, and then he drags Beth into it because she's also there. (sighs) So they're like, cool, fuck off, and then they leave together so that they can go fuck, and then unfortunately this is our rape scene. Yes. I, okay, I, hmm, I, I get why you're saying unfortunately. However, I do think that this is a very keen eye into Nick as a character and inf- oh, sure. reinforces the fact that he is a huge piece of shit. So while yes. I obviously do not like seeing Gene Triplehorn in this scenario at all because I love Gene Triplehorn, it is very telling as to how much of a piece of shit this character is. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. there's a reason this scene exists. It's just one of those where you're like, oh, okay. And here's the sexual assault. Okay. Well, but here's the thing, too. So apparently, I mean, Gene Triplehorn has said, you know, in the script, it wasn't, it didn't read as brutal as that. Supposedly, this, the what wound up in the final cut of this film was a rehearsal that Douglas and Triplehorn oh, were huh. doing yeah. that was filmed. Yeah. Okay. And that's it. <laughs> like, that's it. <laughs> yeah. It's not great. I think it's probably one of the things that has aged the worst but i agree with right. you on kind of like what it says about nick's character i mean i i do think it's necessary if we want to view him in a certain light and to me i think that that is necessary for this film so again mm-hmm. while i'm not saying like could we have been like oh yeah we can have a scene later where she tells him hey that last night you fucked me but it was really um you raped me yes but yeah. again that's where we get getting into the debate of um how necessary is it to show as opposed to tell rape in movies you know yeah, and again, it's like this movie from 92 that is, uh, you know, mm-hmm. kind of dealing with this sort of stuff. I think you were never going to get anything like that. Yeah. Um, and I don't think it prevents me from, you know, liking this movie. Um, it just no. kind of, again, sign of the times. Yeah. yeah. Is what it is. I think it also, it, shit, it sets up a pattern of behavior where nick gaslights her into thinking that she loves him and that he cares about her so that she keeps doing you know favors for him politically and professionally so this is basically the first instance where we think oh she should not be okay with this because he's horrible to her yeah and it establishes this pattern where throughout the film she will apologize to him for all the shitty things he does to her so what i didn't get i didn't get this in the film but so after you know he thinks that she's given his information to uh nielsen who gave it to Catherine, whatever right and she says to him you know oh it's fine i'm a big girl i can take it and then we walk, the camera follows her. She goes to her car and we see her demeanor change. Mm-hmm. Apparently that was meant to signify she's duplicitous. She oh. is not truthful. <laughs> she might be a villain. And I read it as, That's no, not how I read it. That is not how I read that at all. <laughs> I'm like, oh, this emotionally vulnerable woman is having a partial breakdown. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> 
but I think again this is a, a difference kind of like what you were just saying Brooke it's a difference in the way that we read films nowadays because we are trained to empathize with these female characters like I think this movie in 1992 played to a lot of straight men and we're like you should be cheering for Nick Nick is the protagonist of this movie and I look at this movie and I'm like Catherine Trammell is the protagonist yes, of this movie. 100%. But the, the movie, in, in, in many ways, the movie kind of has to has to have a read where Nick is the person that you're following because that yes. is what makes it successful. Right. Yeah, because we're building to a twist. Right. And does Basic Instinct 2, does that then frame her as the protagonist? Like, is she the protagonist? Yes. Lead? Yeah, okay, so there's like your error is like she is way more interesting as a character as the like person that we're investigating who is this Mm. mysterious woman versus like are i into this world you know so i want to bring in this quote then about the 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 inherent quote-unquote misogyny of the femme fatale and this is from palia on this commentary um but she says one of the most vexed issues of contemporary feminism is that of the moral status and meaning of the femme fatale figure that is the image of the woman fatal to man the overwhelming majority of feminist theorists want to call the femme fatale or vamp a misogynist libel against women. Hmm. These are symptoms to them of male hatred of women, the war with women that's been going on for thousands of years. Polya feels that the femme fatale figure of legend, myth, and popular culture tells the truth about sexual relations. It's about male fear of woman, not male hatred of woman. The femme mm-hmm. fatale shows that in her supernatural kind of power, that woman is ultimately unknowable, not only to man, but to herself. Most feminists today are obsessed with the success in the career world, uh, don't want to think that woman has any special connection to nature by virtue of her reproductive apparatus, meaning her uterus. Uh, Polya feels that when the femme fatale is thrown out of the canon of modern popular culture, we lose an enormous amount of the voltage between the sexes that made some of the great films so powerful in the studio era. The origins of the femme fatale go all the way back to prehistory, you know, myths like uh, Medusa or the succubus. There are so many images of these figures worldwide, so how could they be coming from false social indoctrination? Surely these vampire motifs are being generated automatically in culture after culture around the world by the basic facts of male and female anatomy. That is, that every time a man has sex with a woman, he is approaching his site of origins. Therefore, he is always subconsciously a fear that as he puts his essence of his sexual being, or his erect member, into the body of a woman, that she might take it, and he might never get it back again or he might shrink down to a baby again and be reabsorbed into the feminine matrix jesus christ i love that (laughs) there's a lot there there's a lot to unpack Mm -hmm. yeah i think uh i i am very interested though in this idea that like if uh if a woman is enjoying sex that is dangerous in a certain way Mm -hmm. and there's nothing scarier than a woman being in control herself mm-hmm. and how it's not a bad thing to engage with men while being in control of your sexuality yeah, yeah. right yeah i'm i'm a bit flummoxed because i've never seen and you know this is me personally speaking i've never seen a reading from a woman who defines herself as feminist who reads the femme fatale as inherently misogynistic i've only ever heard the femme fatale as a representation of male anxieties about women's power so mm-hmm. that kind of threw me off a little bit like i wasn't exactly sure where she was drawing that from right i mean the rest of it is like 
yeah, you know, men are afraid of women, especially strong women, and it's always been the case throughout history. But but maybe it's that we have this queer bisexual woman as the femme fatale, who also is actually the killer in the film that's muddying the waters a bit? Uh, yeah. And also, for, you know, for every kind of, like, the femme fatale is drawn from male anxieties. There mm -hmm. is kind of, like, the male perspective on that, which is misogynistic, mm -hmm. because men being anxious about powerful women is inherently misogynistic. The question right. is, like, whether you want to read the characters yeah. through a positive lens mm -hmm. or a negative one. And I think that with sort of like queer or bisexual femme fatales, there's sort of an added element of danger, which is this woman does not need you to satisfy her. Mm -hmm. yeah. She can be satisfied elsewhere. Yes. Mm -hmm. It's just You're, scary to me. Like men fear not like that's why, you know, like within any sort of like queerness is like, oh, you're not abiding to my idea of sexuality i can't control you like we don't right. have a grasp on what this is this foreign concept which is inherently like a scary thing and that's why like queer communities have been marginalized for fucking decades yeah. and generations if you don't need me as a man for sex what do you need me for right mm -hmm. yeah well and i feel like we see that in this movie in interestingly enough we're up to the part where uh he follows her to hazel's house so hazel dobkins played by dorothy malone she's one of several murderous women that Catherine surrounds herself with and i feel like nick spends a large portion of the back half of the movie trying to understand like why do you surround yourself with this woman with roxy and so on and it's like it's because you don't understand women and i think in particular <laughs> case you don't understand this queer woman who yes. finds a sense of comfort in other women who are not afraid of being transgressive and pushing boundaries right yeah yes. uh yeah any thoughts, by the way, about the way that Verhoeven shoots that car chase? Because I fucking loved it. Hilarious. Heart A plus. Like, in the best way. This, this scene, I don't think, needs to be in this movie. No. But I'm, I'm glad it is. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, uh, can Verhoeven direct, like, Fast 11? Because... <laughs> I mean, y'all, I think Verhoeven's in his 80s now. I'm, like, terrified. Like, whatever the last movie he made, which is Benedetta right now, but, like, mm -hmm. it's always going to be his last movie. <laughs> Right? Yeah. Yeah. <sighs> so many bangers. If I was in my 80s, I'd be retired. I'm sorry. Like, I would not be making movies still. <laughs> I, I, will, I will continue to hold out hope. But he has a pretty good catalog, so there's I mean, plenty of oh, yeah. watch material. For him to crank out Benedetta now, A plus right? material on him. Pretty legendary. I mean, after L too, because L is like... Oh, yeah. I love L. Oh, so good. It's... Super controversial, folks. In case, oh yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah. If you, uh, he didn't content take warnings for sexual assault, among other things, in L. Just, just a just, few. Just go watch it and draw your own conclusions. And then right? Yes, challenging material begs to be seen by folks. Yeah, but very much. So. That that is a conversation piece if I've ever seen one. Yeah. yeah. Oh boy. Yeah. You know what's a conversation piece in this? What's that? Uh, the Bart Simpson keychain. Hey, we're not there yet. Don't oh my spoil. God. I was going to talk about when Nick falls asleep to Hellraiser. <laughs> also true. <laughs> um, okay, so we're up to the part where Nick starts to slowly lose his mind. He realizes that Catherine has gotten access to his files because she knows about his coke habit, the internal affairs <laughs> investigation, and also his wife's death by suicide? Um, a plot point that I had completely forgotten about. <laughs> Because it comes to nothing. Well, at the time when this was coming out, you know, people that were against this film were like, 
You have another film with Michael Douglas as this fucking sexist womanizer. Mm-hmm. At least in Fatal Attraction, you had the Ann Archer character as his wife who was like balancing some of this out. But right. this one, you just removed the wife, which makes it inherently more bad, mm-hmm. I guess, in some people's eyes. At the same time, why is this even a plot point? Just get, don't have this no. ex-wife, this dead wife in the movie. Gotta have a dead wife. Christopher Nolan's thrilled Always. about this one. <laughs> <laughs> it's like the Esterhaus like checklist. Okay, we've got to have way too many men in here, maybe a dead wife, and copious amounts of coke. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do y'all think they were just <laughs> doing cocaine on this movie? I love like the lack of a pause. pause. You're just like, yes. (laughs) Absolutely. A hundred percent. This is not a movie you make with a clear head. (laughs) (laughs) Could not be made today. No. Definitely not. And that's why we love it. So I'm curious because we we do have this moment where he learns all this stuff from Catherine and then he he storms out but before he leaves that's when Roxy kind of struts in and they begin this very male gazy for the camera performative kind of makeout session mm-hmm. and I'm interested how do you two feel about the depiction of actual bisexual sex in this movie because we don't get much more than this do we yeah, there's just the makeout and the boob grab. And then there's a little bit of them, I think, in the bathroom of yeah. the, mm-hmm. uh, she closes the, the club. Yeah. I think that's the sexiest part. Yes. It's so hot. Oh. As a bisexual woman, I was a big fan. Uh, and nice. they're doing coke and she just shuts the door in his face. Ugh. <laughs> lovely. Um, I don't know. I don't mind it because, again, it's like the movie very much has its cake and eats it too because every mm-hmm. sort of like male gazy performative thing that Catherine does, we get a sense that she's doing because she knows that it's male gazy and performative. Right. And she yeah. and Roxy are so clearly into, again, sort of like a bad bisexual stereotype, but like they're into the threesomes. Like, oh, she can mm-hmm. join us sometime, et cetera, et cetera. Like they're showing off for Nick. And Catherine is again using that as like, I don't need you to fuck me. I'm good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So, I don't know. I like it. I don't have a problem with it. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I think, if anything, like, I feel bad for Roxy, because yeah. Roxy sort of gets short-shifted in this, but, like, I don't think the depiction is necessarily, like, ill or not. I think, if anything, like, it sort of just boils down to, like, how we feel about the representation as a whole, you know, like, and how this just is, like, one piece of the larger bisexual puzzle that this movie is, like, crafting. But I also view this, like, club as, like, it's like Catherine is like this queen of the queer underworld in this club. It's yes. a little bit. Kind of awesome. And Nick stands out like a fucking sore thumb. Yeah, Nick does not oh belong God, here so at good. all. <laughs> he is too vanilla for this shit. Don't go to a club in a sweater, sir. What are you, you doing? Do <laughs> in, unless it's Fright Night. I need to reiterate this. He literally looks like Chris Sarandon in Fright Night. But in it, isn't scene. Fright Night set? Is it in Chicago or Detroit? Or at least it's uh, no, it's like a small town like around Los Angeles, isn't it? Oh shit! I was gonna say, well, at least because this one's like San Francisco. Like, no, it's not cold there, sir. Don't do that. But Can never mind. Kind of nippy in San Francisco. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's. I mean, it's the cold part of Colder California. Part of but California. still, that does not excuse the fashion choice. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All the people from San Francisco are going to be like emailing us and saying, uh, actually it gets super fucking cold when the fog rolls in. When the fog rolls in. Trace, yes. Do you know how much fog comes off the bridge? A lot. Copious <laughs> amounts of fog and copious amounts of cocaine. Boom. You can't tell the That's difference. That's my favorite kind of setting. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, okay, so we did jump ahead, but basically it's a, I don't know, I find the back part of this film, it sort of loses me when we move away from the Catherine Nick stuff and we start to move more into the Beth as a potential alternative killer and right. his career is spiraling. But yeah, I mean, I think for me, the scene where he finger bangs Catherine as Roxy desperately <laughs> tries to like look over that dude's shoulder in the club is really interesting. I think it's important for our queer reading that we kill Roxy very shortly after so that we can remove one obstacle to a traditional heterosexual romance. Sorry. So again, if you're talking about biphobia or like queer homophobia in this movie, it really is. Okay. Roxy is so jealous that. uh, See, I read this more as Roxy's possessive of Catherine as a partner yeah. not as a oh this man is threatening my lesbianism with this woman and i think that you can read it that way but i don't get that impression from roxy yeah i think again this is where i think the screenplay kind of like gets the movie in trouble there's like the sort of gross michael douglas oh let's talk man to man line mm-hmm. Ooh. But, but but that's him that's the character yeah. Well, yeah definitely but you know because he is the the framework for which we're right. viewing this movie i think again right. it's like it, it is sort of like a catch-22 where you understand that we're looking at a character but we're also you know looking at the framework of this movie again it doesn't bother me, but I can see how it would bother. I see how there's a reading where you're like, yeah, that's not great. Personally, mm-hmm. I don't really mind it. I think, like, this movie is is in a particular zone, and it doesn't really stray from that zone. Obviously, you can nitpick it to death, but... I think, at the end of the day, once you get to the end of the movie, because, again, we have that whole scene where Sharon Stone is, like, visibly upset over Roxy's death. Yeah. Right. Do y'all think that is a genuine performance from Catherine, or do you think that's an act? Mm. I think it's genuine, honestly. Yeah, okay. I think it's genuine, but that she understands the effect it's, effect. it's going to have on yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Interesting. See, I don't want to say I disagree, but I had a different read of it. I, I, I had it as no. She is playing everyone, and and Roxy is just another pawn in her game. I mean, you can totally mm. see that. Like, for like, there's totally a world in which that's true, and there's totally a world in which like it's not true. And I think that's like kind of the majesty of Catherine as a character is that mm-hmm. she is so unscrutable, and that we actually by the end still don't know everything about her, and she does keep us guessing. And I think that's why she's so fascinating is because. You spend these two hours watching and like trying to investigate this character. Is this the killer? And yes, right. you obviously find out like she did it, but like we still don't really know much about her. Yeah. You know, when yeah. like when what is making her tick and like her bisexuality is still a mystery and like that's kind of fun, you know? And like her as like this object of just success and like power is like cool to like witness. So mm-hmm. Isn't it funny where, you know, as queer people, we watch these movies and we think, oh, we want not necessarily better representation. But, you know, I watch this movie and think, I wish that I could get a bit more Roxy. I'd like to know more about her. She seems like an interesting character or even just an interesting foil for Nick as our protagonist. And yet at the same time, you know, Jordan, you just said, oh, it's like a puzzle. And we get to sort of sift through the pieces and decide what we like and what we don't like. And isn't that enjoyable? And isn't that a different kind of experience? And I think that's what makes me appreciate the film. Yeah, Yeah, why not both? Like, to be completely sincere, like, this is one of my favorite queer movies. But but that's, Joe, that's when we get into, like, the Silence of the Lambs conversation, where it's like, you know, both you and I, I don't know how y'all feel, uh, Brooke and Jordan, but, like, 
Joe and I both love Silence of the Lambs. Oh, huge but, fans. but yeah. we, we are aware and we acknowledge its transphobic tendencies and the, the ripple effect it had yes. on society. Yes. And I think the same thing can be said about this, even though I do think that this film is less egregious um, in its its homophobia than Silence of the Lambs is about its yeah. transphobia. But again, it's the thing about we can acknowledge these things and still like the movies we're talking about. Yes. yes. And this is yes. sort of like a fun queer power that we have as, right. um, you know, queer creatives is that I'm like, yeah, I see, you know, this is a movie that I could be offended by, but I could also be like, yeah, I fucking love this movie. And no one can mm-hmm. tell me that I can't love this movie because I am like the targeted part of it. But, like, specifically for basic instinct. So that's why right. I'm like, yeah, um, I'm a huge fan. And no one <laughs> as a bisexual woman. Yes. <laughs> Don't fucking bisexual. tell me what yeah. I can and cannot like about basic instinct. <laughs> <laughs> well, as a gay man, can I offer an interesting reading I had literally never considered until this rewatch? Yes. Please. Okay. So before Roxy tragically bites it in her exciting car derailment, we do have this moment where Nick goes to meet Gus and Gus is drinking. He's clearly drunk and he's warning Nick, you know, stay away from Catherine. I don't think she's good for you. And this was the first time that it ever occurred to me that Gus is totally in love with Nick. And then I was happy to see that I am not alone in this reading. So I'm going to bring back Celestino. And she says, Gus is Nick's only friend, the only one who supports him when nobody else believes he is innocent. Gus constantly tries to remind his friend that Catherine is guilty and that he is letting his attraction for her spoil his professional detachment. Gus's aggressiveness towards Catherine is expressed through continuous offensive references to her lethal sexual organ, suggesting the sexual nature of his jealousy and his perception of her as a rival He himself confesses to Nick that he does not like women. And then finally, the fun little kicker, which you would have to know based on where this movie was shot, is that this scene in particular was filmed at a country and western bar called Rawhide 2, which is a popular gay and lesbian restaurant, which has since tragically closed. Interesting. I think for whatever reason, I did know that this scene was filmed at like a a gay and lesbian bar restaurant. And I mean, if you've listened to five minutes of the queer quadrant, you know Mm -hmm. that we're huge fans of the this person (laughs) is in love with this other person read. But I do think it makes sense, particularly with how much he talks about Catherine's pussy. Let's just say this is when we get the magna cum laude pussies done fried up your brain line, right? Yeah. Yeah. Isn't he wearing, he's wearing a cowboy hat. He's wearing a cowboy hat, which is like, yeah. we're coding. Yes. Yeah, so is Beth the summa cum laude pussy? Yeah, the secondary, sure. but not <laughs> Did anyone graduate with the GED? What are we talking about? Like, what are the <laughs> Do they That's offer Roxy. those at Berkeley? That's Roxy. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, I love that read. Huge fan. Yeah, yeah that's go. good. That's awesome. I mean, look, there's nothing straight about cowboy core, so... Mm-hmm. This is true. You know. <laughs> So Roxy is now dead, so we've removed one obstacle towards Nick and Catherine getting together. Gus will be the other one later on in our De Palma elevator kill. But uh, we also have to introduce our big red herring, which is that Beth 
had a husband that she maybe murdered and that she was obsessed with Catherine when they were at Berkeley. I did love that Catherine's description of Lisa Oberman, oops, I meant Lisa Hoberman, <laughs> is basically the plot of single white female. Well, okay, wait, wait, wait. wait. So do, do y'all believe that Beth, aka Lisa Hoberman, was actually obsessed with Catherine Trammell? How could we know? I, how would you <laughs> but, know? How could you know? That's the thing. That, that's the thing. This movie leaves so much up to the audience to, yes. to to surmise themselves. And again, to me, maybe the optimist that I am, I'm like, no. In my mind, that is not the case. Now, do mm-hmm. I think that they had a sexual relationship and that maybe, yes. maybe Beth was like confused and coming to terms? With it? Yes, absolutely. And I guess I liken it to myself in high school. You know, the first guy that I ever dated in high school, I I could have been deemed obsessed with him mm-hmm. because I was <laughs> like, oh, I'm gay. This might be the only guy I ever meet in my entire life who also likes me. So again, th- th- there are so many things about Beth's history that are not said in this movie that I, I empathize with because I'm filling in a lot of the blanks myself. Sure. But that is falling into, again, the viewer's life experiences, filling in what you know about Beth's backstory. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Honestly, I love the idea of like a sap, like the sapphic duality there. But also, like, honestly, Beth is probably so overwhelmed by how good Catherine is fucking that she was like, mm-hmm. that was like the best fuck of my life. I don't know what to do with myself now. So, like, if right? she became the fuck a little of the obsessive, century. like, sure, I get it. I Girl, understand. why not? <laughs> um, I do love her delivery of, what was I supposed to say? Hey, guys, I'm not gay, but I did fuck your suspects. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> Also, girl, you're a little gay. It's fine. Right? Yo, she's gay. That to me is the biggest like 1992ness yes. of this well, queer yes. stuff I'm is where gay. she's like, I, I was embarrassed. It was just a one-time thing. Wait, 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 wait. Because I, I do think, I mean, look, not to come down on all of you, but I do think <laughs> that. No, I think it belittles or, or it, it shames experimentation because I think you can be straight and still want to experiment with members of the same sex. I do agree. However, I hmm. think that I've maybe, again, hmm, this is, hmm, well, this is a little bit of a, a sticky area. But <laughs> no, go ahead. Go ahead. I think there are um, very many more bisexual people in the world than yeah. they think yeah. there oh. are. And to me, although, like, I think experimentation is great and you should obviously, like, do whatever you feel called to, you might be a little more bisexual than you think you are. Right. Well, but I think that's even though putting a label. I mean, again, you can just say I like people. That's also well, why well, you might be a little more people, queer. Right. Than people you think are, you are so mm-hmm. bound to labels, and I think like you look at when this movie was made, and like just the conversations around sexuality and like experimentation and everything. I think it's just very emblematic of the time. Yes. Like yes. I just, yeah. and I think that like we as a culture aren't open to discussing sex and these things in a comfortable manner so people don't have the language or the ability to Mm -hmm. feel comfortable talking about these things and actually parsing through maybe where they feel or what they land or where you know like we just don't have that discourse and like aren't as a culture built that way yeah so and you know know, sort of like the spectrum should continue to expand so that it doesn't feel like you do have to put a label on it or that you but you know you don't have to regress either and be like i'm straight i just experimented a little i guess i i I was so used to maybe y'all feel similar i was so used to growing up in a world where it was like oh if you if you even thought about doing something with a guy if you were a man 
then that automatically made you gay. It's like no, no you're fully it doesn't make gay. you gay. You're Kinsey six. Exactly. Right, right. It, like you, you could, you can try. Like I, I can try to have sex with a woman. It doesn't make me bisexual or pansexual or straight. Maybe I want to try it just to see. You know, I, I, all I'm saying is I, I get all of this that what we're all saying. I just, uh, I don't want to diminish the uh, the uh, the positivity the of, of experimenting. Yeah. No, completely agree. People should experiment and do whatever. What I said, whatever they feel comfortable with. It's super right. healthy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and don't label yourself if you yeah. don't feel comfortable with it. I mean, for me, the the reason I scoffed is because, and this this was me taking a cue from the film, mm. is that when Nick goes to like Beth's former hometown or whatever to investigate her dead husband, the one guy says, you know, she was never a suspect, yeah. but her girlfriend was. So in my mind, Beth's response where she says, you know, I fucked your suspect one time, I'm like, but girl, it wasn't one time because you clearly were bringing Catherine along as your girlfriend places. Right. Yeah, and that is the thing where, like, unfortunately, this isn't Beth's story. And, and that no. is, like, we're already a two-hour and eight-minute movie. Do we want to add 20 minutes to give Beth, to flesh Beth out more? Now, no. granted, yes. maybe. Yeah, but <laughs> Three hours long. Oh, God. <laughs> the movie doesn't actually care about any of this, like, and... I feel bad for saying this, but I don't think the movie even cares about Beth as a character. This is just to make us question whether Catherine actually yes. is the killer it's or could it off. be Beth. Right, right. And to me, I'm like, it's wholly unsuccessful. It's always Catherine. Yeah. 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 Okay. I see that. But she has Bart Simpson keys, so we have to be a little cautious. <laughs> true. She has good taste, right? She does. She, her finger's on the pop culture pulse. Yes. uh okay so catherine's book shooter uh she calls nick's character shooter i love wait i'm sorry but her first book that we see earlier in the film is called love hurts which what i don't buy for a second (laughs) that she would name her book something as generic as love hurts it's kind of like a trashy paperback which uh, i feel like it's not the vibe it's giving book talk yeah shooter makes sense yeah I mean, I, I think of, um, I can't remember when She-Devil is, but it contains my <laughs> all-time favorite fictional book title, Love in the Rinse Cycle. And I'm like, if that's a better book title than fucking Love Hurts, then <laughs> Catherine Tremont needs a better agent. Love Hurts. <laughs> Everybody hurts in this movie. Right? <laughs> so i do love that Catherine just flips this switch you know we literally see this manuscript printing in the dot matrix printer Woo! flashback and uh she she is stone cold to nick she is completely done with him and he's so mad and confused yes <laughs> like, what did you expect it's like you you just ran her lover off the road and killed her <laughs> mm. Mm. So then Gus dies in this elevator, and as the queer reading of this movie, if we do think of Gus as a potential love interest for Nick, I'm like, oh, okay, well, there's getting rid of the other potential barrier right. to the heterosexual yeah. romance. Showing all the gays. Right. <laughs> Not all of them. One Not remains. One remains. One, one remains. So, yeah, then Beth appears, and Nick, like, ooh. The tricky part of this, like, misogyny, bisexuality, queer reading of this movie is when Nick says something shitty, like, you still like girls, Beth, and then shoots her dead. (laughs) 
But again, again. I know, I know. Like, it's Nick is a shitty character and it's yeah, illustrating yeah. that. But if you think of Nick as your audience proxy right. in 1992, you're like, ooh, well, that's not great. But I, I think, though, again, that, that going back to media literacy, that is people mm-hmm. mistaking protagonist for character I'm meant to root for. Yes, yeah. right. yes. Like, you yeah. can have a bad person as your lead. And honestly, yeah. that's sometimes more engaging than if you just have like a bland vanilla oh. nothing. Almost um, always. Joe, how mm-hmm. many times have we talked about Blando <laughs> protagonist final girl syndrome? <laughs> so often. Um, I think that that's why this movie is just discussed to death. You know, there's there's right. a lot of layers to unpack, and it's, I, it's in the hands. It's of very much a these these protagonists display characteristics that maybe a lot of viewers have that they aren't willing to fully come to terms with. But mm. to me, that makes it more interesting. Like. All of us have dark impulses. All of us have bad thoughts. All of us have evil thoughts. And we don't like to share those things, especially today. But watching a movie with a character that is inherently like a fucking shitbag like Nick. And granted, I'm not saying I'm like Nick in any shape, way, or form. We all have a little bit of Nick in us. Exactly. Yeah. And I think that, that to me is fascinating because it, for me, it offers a catharsis to where I'm like, oh, I'm kind of getting some of my bad shit out of me by watching this character in a film do this. So I don't do it myself kind of a thing. <laughs> sure sure yeah i mean that's i that's why i love or one of the reasons why i love kind of like morally ambiguous media again it's this idea that it is like forbidden in a certain way you want erotic thrillers because you want to give in to your basic instincts like literally (laughs) yeah um and that's second time part of the fun of them and there's nothing wrong with that that's another like really good function that media and art serves yeah yeah yeah, it's like an outlet. Yes, should always be an outlet. So after Beth dies, we find the costume because, of course, this is very De Palma dressed to kill. So there's, you know, a discarded costume in the stairwell. And then we go to Beth's apartment. We find, yes, her murder scrapbook and the case is obviously closed. So now we can get our happy ending. And of course, this final twisty shot. Okay, wait, wait. What I love about this, the movie ends. The movie cuts like fades to black. Yes. And then it fades back in. <laughs> <laughs> hey, did you see it? Hey, did you hey, see it? Hey, I got one more for you, baby. <laughs> yep. Yeah. It's just, it, it, it's a playfulness in the movie that, again, if you're watching this, yes. you're taking it so seriously. And again, I'm not trying to, like, disparage the mindset of queer folks in the 90s who were obviously living in a very different time period than us who were offended by this. Mm-hmm. But, oh my god, the playfulness of this final scene. <laughs> it's the playfulness of all of Paul's stuff. It's like, you know, you look right. at, like, Starship Troopers or this, oh you know? God. It's like he has such a clear sense of tone and how to use a camera, and he knows what will elicit as we've said throughout this whole thing so it is so winking like huh? mm-hmm. hey you're still here i had you for the two hours and i'm gonna give you all the time that you want and have fun with it you know like that's why it's a good movie <laughs> yeah. yeah and it's a pretty essential final scene oh yeah oh yeah i'm just imagining audiences like getting up during the initial fade to black <laughs> and like getting like leaving the theater no <laughs> nicole kidman would have their head on a spike yes. terrible <laughs> etiquette cinema cinema but um yeah so that that is basic instinct i love the fact that we basically end on this kind of like good for her moment hey it really is a good for her moment so okay conclusively do we all think that Catherine tramell is the mastermind and did all the murders yes yes yeah okay 
<laughs> I do as well. But apparently, it, it was a. It's been a hot topic for the past mm-hmm. 30, 30 years. <laughs> That it might be uh, not Catherine or all of them, all of the women in this movie. I think it's all Catherine. I I don't know. I just think, like, she's the one who clearly has that element of perfect control. I don't buy that she would manipulate someone else into killing for her when she knows that she can kill someone and get away with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, we watched Wild Things recently and talked about that movie. Right. Oh, I was and literally just thinking about that. That movie plays with, like, who did it and, like various murderers and everything mm-hmm. like that and i think that's because ostensibly everyone except for nev campbell in that movie is an idiot and yes. i think in this movie it's just Catherine because everyone's an idiot except Catherine, and like therefore yeah. in order to pull off and get away with it you need to be smart and she's smart she's just well, operating at mm-hmm. a completely different yeah. level and here's the thing, and that is why it is it is of vital importance that Catherine is not the protagonist of this movie, at least in terms of screenplay standards. It right. is Nick. She is the secondary character. There is a version of this movie that has Catherine as the main character where we're privy to all of her doings, mm-hmm. and that is Basic Instinct 2. Yeah, which does not work. I exactly. guess I have to fucking watch this movie. Jesus. Okay, you two have to watch, yeah, it watch it and then report back we'll watch to it, us. But we'll watch it together <laughs> and then we'll follow it with something fun. Okay, that I bound. would consider that. Yeah. Yes, uh, I mean, honestly, I'm, why not? I'm always down for it. Bound to 2 should exist. Yeah, where bound is it? Uh, <laughs> back in the The Wachowskis <laughs> need to come back to it. They gave us a Matrix sequel. We need right. a Bound. Two. Well, actually, I guess we're getting it in Chucky I season 2. I was about to say that. They're reuniting on the set of Chucky and very excited. So hot. Um, Love it. it. It better be hot. That's all I'm saying. There's not one smooch. Be hot. What are we yes. doing? Yep. Oh, there better be some major cunnilingus in that show. Yep. <laughs> but <laughs> Ooh, I guess we could say one one positive thing about Nick. Yeah, he does he does eat pussy. He does. Oh, oh Michael Douglas famously goes down. We all know this. <laughs> I think that even if there was a movie in which Michael Douglas's character isn't eating pussy, he would contractually stipulate that a scene should be added. Right. Really... I won't do full frontal, but I will. <laughs> I will go down. Yeah. yeah. I won't show my dick, but I will gladly eat a pussy. Like yeah. I'm so... the fact that he is a sex addict in real life really adds some extra layers to oh, this as well. No, is he? Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's sad. Anyway, well, that has been Basic Instinct. <laughs> wah, 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 wah. <laughs> uh, final thoughts, Brooke and Jordan. What, what, what do you, what, what you want to say? Uh, great movie. I, I, <laughs> I honestly like. I really love this film, and I, yes. I would um, encourage people. Well, if you listen to this whole episode, then you won't be going in cold. But I encourage people <laughs> to watch this movie with with as little social framework as possible and just kind of mm. like focus on the story because I really do think that there's nothing quite like this movie um, and I respect it in so many different ways. Sharon Stone for president. Thank you and good night. <laughs> Honestly, I feel like there's not much more else to say. It is, I think just like so perfect. And as like time marches forward, as we all head toward our, you know, like inevitable death, I think that this movie just Shorten. gets better and better. No, honestly, like each time, like I've rewatched it, like I don't know, the first time I watched it was probably in college or something. And I was like, oh, wow, this movie is a movie. And then mm-hmm. upon rewatch, it just gets better and you pick up on so much more. And like the way yeah. that sexuality is seen and like morality and the way that he's playing with all of these various different things. And like there's a world in which you look at this movie and you're like, oh, it's just a base erotic murder mystery like whatever but it's not that at all and it's so much smarter than that like Catherine Trammell 
So right. I don't know. It's I think the Catherine Trammell of erotic thrillers. It truly is the yes. Catherine Trammell of all erotic thrillers. Oh, what yeah. a what how beautifully put. Yes. Before I let, because Jillian, this is your movie, so I'll let you close it out. But um, I will say that um, I won't cap off anything more than what you all have said. I agree with everything you all have said. Um, I will say for a good later career Sharon Stone role, it is not a good movie per se, but it's a really good role for Sharon Stone. And that is Emilio Estevez's 2006 film Bobby about the uh, assassination oh. of Robert F. Kennedy. Ooh. She plays a nail salon employee who is doing uh, Lindsay Lohan's nails in the film. And huh. it is movie is fine not great but sharon stone is easily the best part of the film in a very understated role so um hmm. again if you're looking for if you're like where did sharon stone go after 2006 when basic instinct killed her career um watch bobby <laughs> just for her no, sharon no. stone renaissance when that's Neither. all Please. i'll say Please. I thought when she started showing up in Ryan Murphy things it meant that she was going to be like back <gasps> yeah. in a Quentin Tarantino kind of vibe uh huh I mean, and it he fucking should, hasn't happened. He should use her. Like, if you have seen The Quick and the Dead, a perfect movie. Like, oh, I love The Quick and the Dead. Why is why is she not in like a Tarantino Western or something? You know, yes. like she should have been in Django. I know, Joe, I know you and I just agreed about Ratchet. But uh-huh. is Sharon Stone not the best part of Ratchet? Oh, 100%. <laughs> that in the costume design. Right. She's been, you know, coming back into yeah. stuff. We have Ratchet. We have The Flight Attendant. Oh, the, yeah. Is she in the new like feud thing they're doing, or uh, no, like with all the Capote women? Or uh, no? Ooh, I don't know I about don't that. That's so. oh. a bummer. Um, but yeah, there's there's some stuff, so we'll keep mm-hmm. an eye out. Yeah, it's something we all want. Yes, it is. Okay, well, I'm going to close this out, and as I am apt to do, I found a really good quote. So I'm going to bring in Adam Morrison, who was writing on the Blacklist blog, a piece on essential LGBTQ films. Hmm? Duh, basic instinct. And so (laughs) he writes this. When was the last time you saw a movie where a gay character was the wealthiest person in the room? (laughs) Catherine Trammell is worth $100 million. When was the last time you saw a movie where a gay character was the smartest person in the room? Catherine Trammell holds two degrees, one in psychology and one in creative writing from Berkeley, (laughs) no less. When was the last time you saw a gay character be the most successful? (laughs) Catherine's books are all bestsellers. When was the last time a gay character was all three of those things at once? Probably never. She did that. She really did. She and did that. this is why it is a feminist and queer forward masterpiece. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Bada bing. God. <sighs> this was great. Yes. <laughs> Thank you so much for trusting us with this movie. Truly an honor. Well, of course. And, you know, before we run into our regular housekeeping shit, um, Brooke and Jordan, please let our listeners know where can they find you on social media and your podcast? Yes, if you are interested in more of us or the Queer Quadrant, including our version of the Basic Instinct episode, uh, very difficult to hold a candle to what we've done here today, but you know, <laughs> we do our best. Um, a different can, flavor. Different exactly. Flavor. You can find us mostly on Twitter. I'm at Brookie Solomon. Jordan H. Gus. And we're also on Letterboxd at Brookie Solomon. Jordan H. Gus. And you can find <laughs> the Queer... <laughs> and you can find the Queer Quadrant on Twitter at Queer Quadrant and on Spotify, on Apple, wherever else you care to get your podcast. Ice picks. Yep. Mm-hmm. You know, check us out and feel free to tweet at us. Let us know. Uh, Only Catherine Schmel gifts. Uh, what you think, what a good time you had, and what you might like to see us cover. 
Nice. My request for next summer is I would like you to do what you've done with the Fast and Furious franchise this year. Uh, I think I put this in writing, but I would like you to do the X-Men film. Yes. Yes. Definitely have a conversation about it. We would love to. I think the Brian Singer of it all mm-hmm. It mm-hmm. really hurts. It does. But I would yep. honestly love to talk about them. Same. So just know Man. the wheels are New mutants, baby. The wheels there are I mean, honestly, though, discussing films with problematic creators like uh, child mm-hmm. rapist Brian Singer, uh, yep. that uh, adds a it's really worth a discussion. Yeah, yep, adds adds a layer. <laughs> to say Certainly it. does. <laughs> well, okay. Well, um, if you want to get in touch with us, you can reach us on Twitter and Instagram at horrorqueers, or shoot us an email at horrorqueers at gmail Find us on Letterboxd, keep track of all the films we've covered, and go to our YouTube channel to check out our interviews with various horror filmmakers, as well as our monthly hangouts where we talk about hot button issues with some of our peers. And if you want to chat with other listeners, please join our Facebook Horror Queers group. But most importantly, if you want to show Joe and I some love, sorry, Joe and me some love, uh, <laughs> please go rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. We love a star rating, but we love a review. True. And if you want even more content, please support the show by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash horrorqueers. Uh, we are finally in October. Um, this is the first episode of October. So if you go to our Patreon for the month, we will have episodes on the uh, Grady Hendrix adaptation of My Best Friend's Exorcism. Hey. Hell yeah. Hocus Pocus 2. Ugh. <laughs> wow. Uh, the new Hulu Hellraiser starring Jamie Clayton. Yeah. yeah. David Gordon Green's Halloween Ends. Okay. Will evil die tonight? Oh, God. Hopefully forever. Uh, and of course, we'll have an audio commentary on one of the best horror remakes ever made in 2002's The Ring. Yeah. Woo! <laughs> But, um, okay, everyone, so yeah, go sign up for that, get that shit. But, Joe, what mm-hmm. are we covering next week as we continue our spooky month of October? Well, uh, before Halloween can ends, we should probably let it <laughs> kill. So we're going to open the Patreon vault from last year and speak about that decidedly unsatisfying second entry in the trilogy. <laughs> Y'all, we tried to be fair. I, I, if I remember correctly, when we recorded this last year... You were like, I know I was right. I was mm-hmm. like, I'm really upset because I liked the 2018 one. <laughs> right. Yeah, I feel like we are fair to it, but we are also quite critical. So I'll be interested to see folks who like Halloween Kills if they're going to be happy with us. But yeah. you'll have to wait till next week to find out. And until next week, everyone, I think we can cross out Basic Instinct. But not Risk Addiction. That's no, no. <laughs> that's no. a future episode, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> maybe. Uh, yes, and cross out horror queers. Mm-hmm.